0: All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with goodranchers.com. That's right. If you go on to GoodRanchers and you use promo code NIC and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breasts, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free to get that deal. And let's get on with the show. Hello, and thank you for joining us on Making the Argument. We have a very special episode today because we have a guest. And what we're going to be talking about is pretty important because we're not only going to be talking about what happened during COVID and the people that started to come out and expose certain things that were going on and the way the government treated those people. We're going to talk about what it means for the next time, because we've been through this now. We've been through this, and hopefully we've learned something because if history has taught us anything, is that when you go through anything, like a crisis or even a pandemic, that's probably not the last time you're going to see it, and you better have learned the correct lessons from the last time you went through it. So we're very excited to have Dr. Robert Malone with us, and uh, we've got all of that and a lot of questions to include your questions coming up and more on this episode of Making the Argument. Thank you for joining us. Listen,
1: we are so close to hitting 1,000 subscribers on the Making the Argument YouTube channel. And maybe during this stream, I think Nick's channel is going to hit 300,000 subs. So that's very exciting. We have two backup streams in case this one gets taken down. One on the Making the Argument YouTube channel, which you can find in the description of this live stream, and then on Rumble as well. We are streaming on Rumble because, as we know, our guest is not... Our YouTube doesn't like our guest very much, and so uh, we are prepared. If the stream goes down, head over to Rumble and join us there, and I will hand it back to Nick. So
0: I am your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates, but other than that, a reasonably good guy. My beautiful bride, Tina, queen of the bees, could not be here today. We do, of course, have... Our resident historian and political prognosticator Christian Hines. Hey,
1: how you our doing?
0: producer Nick Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking, That's correct? And the man of the hour, maybe a couple hours here, um, okay. Doctor Robert Malone. Doctor Malone, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Nick. Well, hey, there's a couple of things I want to hit right off the bat um, because obviously you, you're you're no stranger to controversy. It turns <laughs> out, right? No, no stranger. Um, but I, so I want to get I want to get to the controversial stuff. Right up front, and yeah. and specifically some of the accusations directed against you. So I I have a, a friend of mine, someone that I respect, uh, someone that works in a similar field, and I I we mentioned that you were coming on uh, the podcast, and the response we got was he is to mRNA vaccines what Al Gore is to the internet, and I was kind of taken aback. So. I double checked. I double checked. But, for real briefly, for anybody that thinks you don't know what you're talking about on this or you've greatly exaggerated your expertise, can you tell us a little bit about why your expertise is relevant to this topic?
2: So, it comes down to my assertion that I am the original inventor of mRNA vaccine technology, the platform. I did not work on these vaccines. And uh, since my work when I was 28 and 29 back at the Salk Institute, Laboratories of Molecular Virology, uh, I had a series of discoveries and then followed up with further discoveries at a startup, and those discoveries included the first uh, disclosure of uh, the invention of use of mRNA as a drug. And then a series of patents that were uh, submitted in the United States and offshore, which resulted in nine issued U.S. patents, all of which I'm on, one of which I'm on just with my wife, having to do with mucosal vaccines. And so there's this uh, thread that I've seen pushed out. Well, he only published a couple of academic papers Uh, One happens to be in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and one happens to be in Science Magazine, but, you know, who's who's counting? (laughs) Um, uh, And... Uh, they were absolutely the first in this area. I was the first one to manufacture RNA at scale, purify it, uh, dissect the genetic elements necessary to make it work, and discover that you could formulate it with positively charged fats to create a lipid nanoparticle that would transfect or deliver the RNA and get it translated or made into proteins in virtually all cell types that I could find at the Salk Institute, including insect cells and uh, everything we, I could scrape off the uh, incubators and uh then also in um chicks frogs frog embryos and then in mice where uh, we do we reduce it to practice for vaccination purposes with uh, hiv antigens and with influenza antigens so
0: how, how long are we talking here like what's the what's the
2: 1987 through 1991
0: okay Okay, so this this is a fair fair amount of time, and, and then,
2: and then it wasn't just that. Um, I was an academic after, so then I went back, finished my last two years of my M.D., came back out, went to U.C. Davis, won a million dollar contract for developing a with the Navy, uh, for developing a vac- DNA vaccine for HIV, and continue working on the technology and developing new catenic lipids and developing. I've got. I don't know, 15, 16 patents, those are just the core ones on that area, have marketed catenic lipid compounds, Promega, you can go buy them from them. Uh, But we abandoned the tech because I was working at the California Regional Primate Research Center with my wife, trying to develop this tech and test it in non-human primates as well as mice, and we could not overcome the toxicity. Mm. And so we abandoned- What, what,
0: What does that mean? Real quick, would you overcome the toxicity with respect to what you were trying to do?
2: These these things are incredibly inflammatory. In other words, swelling, redness, uh, pain, and in particular, if you look at the tissue, a polymorphonuclear infiltrate, which is uh, you could call it pus. Okay. Okay. So uh, they are it's they're very damaging to cells and tissues. In the, in the ways that we were formulating them. Now, some colleagues of mine that I've known for years, uh, particularly at the University of British Columbia, who I called early on in this outbreak and asked them about what they had done to advance the technology, did make uh, significant advancements. Uh, the name of the company at, coming out of the University of British Columbia, which supposedly has significant investment from the Trudeau Foundation, good to know, oh. uh, is Arcturus. Have you heard that name before? That's the name of the latest variant that's currently circulating. That's depl- displaced the other Omicron variants, BA one well, and BA two.
0: So let, let me let me let me ask this because I, I think we have a uh, look I we have a very intelligent audience. We don't have uh, I think an audience where all of them have the same degree mm-hmm. of expertise in this. Um, what is What is the point of developing this sort of vaccine versus what we might consider more traditional? Good
2: question. And it's really important to understand. Of course, this will cause me to be uh, yet again, accused of being CIA, deep state (laughs) or controlled opposition. Uh, But the logic is um, to be frank, as you know, from your work in the past in special forces, we do face a global threat of both emerging infectious disease and engineered pathogens. Mm-hmm. You may or may not know because it used to be classified, and I was secret clearance only, but it's been since declassified. Um, at the, towards the end of the Cold War, we developed a technology that was what's called a binary bioweapon. And I'm not going to disclose the two components, but they can be readily obtained from the environment. Basically, you could now manufacture that in your garage using stuff that you could buy from eBay. And it was so highly lethal. It was aerosolized, so uh, able to be deployed from aircraft of various types. Of course, now you'd use drones. Um, That uh, it was so lethal that um, uh, just to compare one of the problems with the neutron bomb technology is that in the event of a Soviet blitzkrieg to the English Channel um, uh, with, what is it, T-72s? Um, Back in the day, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, we would not be able, to, the, 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 the lifespan after exposure to a neutron bomb was such that tank commanders would still be alive when they would hit the channel, mm. okay? This thing is so hot, this binary weapon, that it would kill them within moments of exposure. So we suddenly had a bioweapon that would stop the threat, it basically eliminated the threat of Soviet blitzkrieg mm-hmm. in Europe, which, as you recall, was a major
0: issue. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm old enough to remember. Uh, it was uh, a major of issue. Of it was Soviets, a major a
2: strategic and, yeah. and tactical issue. Um, you know, it, it was it was the sword of Damocles hanging over Europe. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, just another fun fact, we invested more in – biologic weapons during the 50s and 60s and early 70s, then we invested in thermonuclear weapons. A case can be made that modern biology as it exists in the United States and throughout the world, molecular biology, et cetera, microbiology, virology, is the consequence of massive investment in biowarfare, both in the United States and, you know, Ken Alabak, you may recall, the defector from the Soviet uh, biowarfare programs who used to work in Northern Virginia, I've met him, um, he's gone back now. Uh, so um, th- we're now in an environment where that threat of engineered pathogens from, let's say, the bad guys, whether they're state actors or non-state actors, is so significant that um, uh, we have we really to, to anticipate and, and provide countermeasures. And remember, in, the, in this bizarre world, of medical countermeasures um, uh, it's it, um, where, where everything is fluid. Uh, it's like any other intelligence operation. And by the way, intelligence community is throughout the biodefense complex. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if there is the appearance that we have a technology that can rapidly pr- provide a countermeasure, to an emerging or engineered pathogen, then that alone makes it less likely for the bad guys to reach to that technology as opposed to some other one. Yeah. Okay, so merely having a technological base that can go from gene to vaccine Provides uh, significant just just the rumor that we have that kind of technology provides uh, strategic benefits in terms of uh, medical countermeasures and dissuading the bad guys from going down that particular road. So,
0: and and this is the part that I wanted to get to because I when you when you look at so many of the comments on Twitter or Reddit or wherever else it, you get these little you get these little snippets where it's very very easy to assign every single motivation to either evil or greed or whatever. And, and we were talking about this earlier. Like I, I look at a, a spectrum of things, right? Evil can be a motivation. Incompetence can be a cause, right? Greed can be a motivation. Uh, there can also be positive motivations. I, I think the thing that, that you're describing here is that there were certain threats and so there were and those programs, threats remain. Yeah, and, and those threats remain, and those threat those threats were relevant. They they weren't they weren't just something that were made up. Those threats were were there. They still are there. And and so there were programs that were designed to come up with different ways to develop countermeasures. <laughs> those to,
2: programs are still ongoing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I guess that's what I'm trying to distinguish here is that you know, and some of this stuff, two things can be true at once. I remember I we we talked a little or, bit about those. Or eight
2: things can yeah, be true at once.
0: Yeah, and and we we see that something too, which we'll get to a little bit later in the discussion, but kind of on the same lines with like gain of function research and what was the, what was the legitimate justification? This is all
2: really slippery, squirrely environment where it, there's no clear boundaries. It's all gray.
0: So, so I guess the, the point, the point for my first question is, is that for anybody that's saying you, you don't have the, the, you know, the, the, proper background or, or expertise or credentials, (laughs) that doesn't seem to make sense. And, and to put a nail in that coffin very quickly here, I want to point out that at the height of COVID, the same people within the government, the same people within certain aspects of the government sponsored medical community hired you to work on things, to develop uh, ways to treat COVID. I mean, is that accurate?
2: Yeah, um, uh, it is. And um, I've co- I have co-published with a CIA officer who happened to be the guy that called me from Wuhan in January 4th yeah. of 2020. Uh, I And that, I am not CIA. I have yeah. never been CIA. I'm not CIA trained. Yeah. Uh, I've never been hired by DARPA or the CIA or, or the NSA or any of the other satellite agencies. Um, but I have... You cannot work in biodefense and not have an interface socket with these people. Mm-hmm. I did once create a company with a retired CIA person who is one of our top guns in biodefense at the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, Chem Bio Division. Um uh, his name's Gallagher. Uh and uh so we founded Gallagher and Associates. Uh, and he was the one that introduced me to Callahan, by the way, and okay. I've also been introduced to Callahan's handler, uh, who who was at Harvard, um, and uh, that guy's wife actually uh, works for inQtel as one of their top investment fund managers. For those that understand the language I'm speaking, but that this is the way this industry is is um, they have tight sockets with. Uh, um, mercenary uh activities that are run by american corporations uh and they have tight sockets with uh british uh bio infrastructure uh they have tight sockets with the five eyes alliance mm-hmm. um you can't be in this space and not encounter and deal with those people on a regular basis so 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 i guess
0: the again that kind of the purpose of Of laying up this question was to say that, okay, yeah, to give you an opportunity to be able to explain what you're- Yeah, so so I've I've worked in this
2: space for, um, ever since in particular, I mean, I was in vaccines for about 30 years and technology platforms and biotechnology, mostly in academe and then some startups. But I've been pretty intensively involved in biodefense um, ever since the anthrax attacks, when I went to work for Dynport Vaccine Company as associate clinical director, and I worked on plague, tularemia, um, uh, uh, West Nile, um, uh, the ens- equine encephalitis viruses, pretty much anything that you can name that's in the threat portfolio. Well, of and, the and, DOD. and obviously,
0: and obviously. You know, again, the the CDC. You know, the, the various the various institutes. I've won contracts
2: for clients with the CDC, well, and
0: again on twenty. Again, from what I read in twenty twenty, you you were still called in to work on how do we res- how do we effectively respond.
2: I was leading a major team. I captured almost half a billion dollars in funding for my clients uh, during twenty twenty to develop, uh, really, um, repurposed drugs. Yeah. Uh,
0: for COVID. So so nobody. To include, <laughs> right, the United States government. I, I guess what I'm trying to point out is that there's, I'm not talking about internet trolls that are coming after you because they they don't like you or what you have to say. I, I'm talking about, you know, government entities and, and people associated with government entities, right, Med- medical people associated with government entities that, that decided to make it like kind of their mission. It, it would be one thing for them to come out and say, I believe Dr. Malone is wrong about this, or I disagree with Dr. Malone's analysis on that, but they did not they came out in an effort to completely discredit you, yeah. although none of them, I mean, if and, and here's what I think is damning about the way that they went about doing this. If they really thought that about you, why were they putting you in the positions they put you in all the way up to and including the height of COVID? Why were they doing that? If now they're coming back and telling us all, you're completely, you know, not credible, can't believe anything you said.
2: Um, so it, it. This gets to this whole thing of how is fifth generation warfare PSYOPs played yeah. and um, how there's legal structures in place that uh, the corporate media together with government routinely go to. Um, uh, you can see it in politics all the time. Uh, the uh, strategy of delegitimizing and uh, demeaning and um, uh, defaming others is kind of the easy go-to. And, um, my attorney right now, I'm in the middle of lawsuits against a number, uh, for malicious defamation and, uh, cyber stalking. Uh, but, uh, two of those are the New York times and, uh, the Washington post Uh and my attorney, uh, um, represents some other high-profile political actors and has been deposing the likes of CNN and MSNBC lately. Um, they all undergo training; these journalists in how to maliciously defame others, mm-hmm. without being with by while avoiding the the risks of uh, legal consequences. Sure. So this is um, a case, Sullivan versus the New York Times, that's really enabled this. And and then the uh, section, uh, was it 230 um, of the FACC law that, uh, that allows the censorship. So we have law in place that basically empowers this particular strategy as a political weapon. And that's what it is, mm-hmm. um, is I was perceived as um, being associated with a um, branch of uh, politics, you know, because I went on Glenn Beck, I'm on yeah. I'm on, um, Bannon's show all the time, et cetera, because those are the ones that will allow me to speak. You know, I, MSNBC is not calling me up. <laughs> Rachel Maddow is not inviting me to her show. Uh, and would you go on if she did? Of course I would. Just like Bobby Kennedy says, yeah. I would go on any platform to get the message out. Yeah. Would I go on if they were going to put censor requirements on me? No. Well, I mean, and,
0: and I think this, this is also an interesting point because you, you've been willing to go on and talk about this. And, and I guess what I want to get to the origin of when you made that decision, because at some point th- this couldn't have been an easy decision for, for you and your wife. It couldn't have been an, an easy decision when you look at, again, you, you had years, decades dedicated to this particular field. Building a business. Building yeah. Building a, a, consulting a business. business. Like it, like you had every financial incentive. And a Rolodex, like, yeah, because that—that's the cute part, right? It's like, oh, they're doing this for attention. They're doing it. People that build up a business that is doing relatively well over decades don't tend to risk that at at, at you know, you know this at this stage just to get attention on Substack, right? That's not a thing, right? That's not a thing. Yeah. So w- what was what was the moment where you and some of your colleagues? Because again, it's not like you were alone in this, but I mean, you guys. I, I think you guys recognized early on um, in, in some ways there, there is, I think there was a, a naivete within um, certain elements of the scientific and medical community that will, of course we'll be able to list our concerns, even if it contradicts the government. I don't because think you guys that's the that. way
2: it had always been. Yeah. I mean, I've been through many, many outbreaks. This is yeah. not my first rodeo. Yeah. Okay. I was just to, to continue with the cv i was literally at the tip of the spear bringing forward the dod's preferred ebola vaccine candidate that uh had been purchased for $150,0, dollars. Uh, fun fact uh from a public health agency canada because no one wanted an, an ebola vaccine yeah um and it was purchased by a company called new link genetics who uh, ended up calling the program Freebola because they could never get funding for it. And the people that they had hired to develop it, they'd all fired at this point yeah. when the outbreak finally happened. And so they had no vaccine expertise. And I was, I was basically put, they were told, frankly, by DITRA, Defense Threat Reduction Agency, that they will hire me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I worked at the interface between DITRA and NewLink, to bring the vaccine forward. And then I was the guy that got it sold off to Merck, and that's now the Merck Ebola vaccine. Point being, I have been through a bunch of these. I cut my teeth on HIV in 1983. My laboratory that I was in as an undergraduate was right at the tip of the spear on that one. And uh, my mentor went to uh, Paris and, and the uh pastor institute and met Luke Montagnier and brought back the virus with him and got in a big fight with Bob Gallo over it. I mean it's it's famous. Yeah. Okay. I've lived with this and with the academic politics my whole life and with these outbreaks. I and my peers have never seen anything like this in our lives. You know, Jill and I you asked what what was our red pilling moment. We talk about this in the book that we put out last fall. Um, um, from Skyhorse Publishing called Not to Do a a Punch, but here it is, uh, The Lies My Government Told Me and the Better Future Coming. And uh, um, we had put out, Jill, my wife and I had put out a book, and we're here just to acknowledge for the audience, um, I I am your constituent, Mm -hmm. uh, technically. I live in Madison, uh, Virginia, on a farm that's just a stone's throw from your place here where we're broadcasting. Mm -hmm. Um, So, Uh, We had written a book on using Amazon self-publishing. We wrote it between uh, when I got that call from Wuhan on January 4th, and it was published in the first week in February. Now, some people think this shows that we already had pre-knowledge and we'd already written the damn book, but we hadn't. We worked our cans off, my wife and I, we got a detailed book about how to prepare and protect yourself from the novel coronavirus. It didn't have a name then. Yeah. Okay. It was actually technically numbered WIV Wuhan Institute of Virology. Um, <laughs> uh, just a fun, another fun yeah. fact. Yeah. Uh, of course that didn't happen. Uh, I don't know why I said that. Um, uh, right. Uh, but um you get the point. <laughs> the alleged virus from yeah, the alleged the, place, right. the alleged country. Yeah. yeah, that was allegedly engineered yeah. <laughs> by the alleged funding from yeah. the State Department, yeah. uh, um, USAID, DOD, yeah. and... Um, yeah, Rand yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Rand Paul is still waiting on his apology. You mean it didn't come from
1: a fish market? Yeah, Rand
0: Paul's <laughs> still waiting on his apology from... Seafood market. yeah, oh, seafood yeah sorry, seafood
2: market. Um, uh, yeah, so in any case, um, we wrote this book. We busted our cans. Um, uh, we wrote it for our neighbors, you know, I gave copies to the southern states down in downtown Madison uh, <laughs> okay, yeah, for, for yeah. friends, right? Yeah. that's That was our our audience that we wrote it for, was the, our people in our daily life about how to prepare, prepare and protect yourself from this thing that no one had even heard of then. Yeah, um, I mean, the president barely acknowledged having known about it at the time we got the book well, out. I,
0: I remember sitting in the General Assembly that year as, as reports were starting to come in.
2: So we got it published, and then about a month later, we were updating it, and Amazon wouldn't let us update it. And then uh, we kept asking and asking and asking because there's no porn in it. I mean, there's none of their, their <laughs> usual stuff that they would block you from, and they have a policy. Now, maybe if you'd put porn uh, in it, they th- would have they they fa- fast-tracked it. Yeah, it. yeah.
0: yeah. Um, I got some colleagues that would have put it into a public school right away yeah, the moment yeah. you did that.
2: Um, so, so uh, yeah, it's, what a weird world. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, it's got... You know, hundreds of references. It's it's done in an academic style, but written so the average person can understand it, and um, and we 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 get uh, deplatformed from Amazon, and we keep asking why 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 oh I don't know I can't tell you I don't know, it finally comes out we had violated community standards. Um, that was the first time I ever heard that phrase. And of course we all know that phrase now. It's (laughs) like, um, so, so that was the first wake up call. That was the, you're no longer in Kansas moment. Yeah. Uh, but then there was a series of other ones. And as the jabs started getting, because at that time we didn't know they were going to go down, the whole emphasis on RNA was absolutely driven by Tony Fauci, whatever he tells the New York times and CNN. Okay, with this latest, uh, it's not my fault. Now, tomorrow.
0: why do you say that? Why, why do you say that it was Because
2: I know yeah. it from insiders, okay? He yeah. got pissed off at Rick Bright, who is head of BARDA, yeah. because he executed a a couple hundred million dollar contract with J and J to advance an adenovirus ve- based vaccine. And I know this technology. I know the guy that created the company. He was the senior postdoc in my laboratory at the Salk, um, who went on to create Crusel, which was bought by J and J, which gave rise. It was his technology that goes all the way back to the same bloody laboratory. Okay. So I, this is my business. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I, I go to the vaccine conferences. I know yeah. these people. Okay. I have for years. Um, uh, not anymore. For some reason, I don't get invited. Uh, I don't know why, how about keynoting happened. there anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no breakout sessions. <laughs> yeah, no breakout sessions for Malone. Yeah. Naughty boy. Yeah. Um, so
0: uh, so Amazon so, Amazon, so Amazon,
2: no. Amazon did this, uh, and then we started hearing about the RNA emphasis. And yeah, Tony was really really wanted the RNA tech, um, and we now kind of know why. Uh, because of this belief system that we must have some technology that would be acceptable to the general population yeah. that would go from uh, um, genetic sequence from gene to vaccine, which is a famous paper that I wrote like 15 years ago. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, but of course I don't know anything about this field. <laughs> um, uh, I'm a, I'm a fraud uh, yeah. and an imposter, yeah. uh, but be that as it may, um, uh, As they begin the rollout, uh, I, I had, you know, this series of events of me trying to help Steve Kirsch with Barda and fluvoxamine. And then, um, Steve came to trust me and understand I was, Steve was put to me because I know how to work the DC thing Mm -hmm. in this area. And so I tried to help him just pro bono. Yeah. Um, and, uh, And then he asked me to go on this podcast with this guy that I'd never heard of before, and it sounded very spooky, the Dark Horse podcast. I thought this was something like the dark web. I was like, oh, I don't know. And I look it up, and he's he's an academic geneticist, uh, evolutionary guy. I'm like, oh, this is going to be pretty high-powered. I better be on my toes. Um, And uh, so we did that hit, and all I did was just tell the truth of what all of us know to be the truth but almost nobody was willing to say mm-hmm. I mean, there's nothing there that i said that was a great leap of genius yeah um it was just me saying the obvious things. yes yeah. the quiet part say. out loud yeah exactly yeah. um and uh that was my sin uh and then um and then it snowballed and um i steve put me on a call with a canadian physician from toronto who Wanted to talk to me. Really wanted my help with the Canadian regulatory authorities, and I have done a lot of FDA work, uh, um, in but I don't know the Canadian regulatory world. Yeah, and so he wanted me to intervene with the with Public Health Canada because uh, they were shutting down, they were eliminating, deleting any. Uh, Hosts any, any reports that he gave about adverse events associated with the vaccine. And he told me this horrible story about all the coercion that they were doing to try to get the kids jabbed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I ended up, and by the way, in the end, they broke into this guy's office, totally trashed his computer, and he can hardly practice medicine anymore, and they're trying to run him out of Canada um, because uh, his sin is giving early treatment with drugs like uh, ivermectin. Um, I didn't say that. Or uh, Worm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If I'm like JP Sears, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so. Um, oh, by the so way, I went
0: by, to way bed. I, by the way, I think it is absolutely. To me, it is it is insane that the moment you say a particular word of a medication that that is a bit acknowledged on some level had some effect, right? Like that, that that's something they that can automatically get you deplatformed. And and so you said so you said so let's come back to that let's come back was, to that, let's, let's that. Back to yeah. that
2: whole th- ecosystem because it, yeah. it relates to what I'm about to say. So I go to bed. We we talk until midnight. Um, I go to bed saying, you know, there's just nothing I can do for you. I don't know the system. I don't have anybody on my Rolodex I can call there. Yeah. And um, I wake up in the morning and I and I turn over and I talk to my wife and I said because we both have been trained extensively in bioethics. Yeah. And I said I know what I can do for these poor guys. I can write a paper on the bioethics of what's happening and how wrong it is and the whole history of informed consent and all that and it was already clear that that speaking about any of this stuff was high risk yeah but i figured okay Bioethics is a safe space. Okay, I can talk about bioethics <laughs> at least. I have the credentials. Yeah, it's not a controversial area. You know, it's been established since World War II. Um, informed consent. This is all clear cut, um, and and I'm absolutely on the right side of of history on this. And I can talk about this. So yeah. I wrote that essay, put it in Trial Site News, and um, that was the first real. Um, shot across the bow saying what you guys are doing is wrong. Mm -hmm. And then it cascaded. People started coming to me with information. One of them was this Canadian uh, vaccinologist named Byron Breidel who had obtained the common technical document. Those are fancy words. That's essentially the dossier that Pfizer submitted throughout the world um, to justify selling people this experimental vaccine to their regulatory authorities. And they had submitted it to the Japanese regulatory authority. And it was all translated into Japanese, which I don't read, except for all the data, the tables and figures and such were still in English. And Byram had managed to grab this off a Japanese server. He read it and it blew his mind. And he wrote an essay about it, but it scared the Dickens out of him because what he saw, I mean, it was so shocking And so he, the people that wanted to publish it,
0: you're talking about the shocking part. You're talking about potential side effects. You're talking about, I'm
2: talking about the, um, absolute lack of adequate testing prior to moving it into humans, the complete failure to follow any well-established national or international norms. I mean, they just cobbled this together from junk data that they scraped off the bench it's it, you know it was performed under standards that would be essentially a graduate student working at the bench, um, not nothing carefully controlled or anything, and, and didn't even do all the necessary tests. So, so Byram is frightened by what he reads, and uh, he submits it to the same uh, journal, Trial Site News, that I had published that ethics paper in, and says um, I'm really concerned about this. Can you get somebody else to cross check it? So the guy that owns trial site news sent it to me. And um, so I read it and I was like, yeah, (laughs) this is a problem. Um, This is absolutely not right. And, and I was frightened. And so I wrote up what I found and I sent it to a colleague who was even more senior and experienced in regulatory affairs. And he, and asked him, is this real? Am I seeing these things? Is this? Do you see the same thing? And he said, "Oh yeah, everything you see here is right, but you missed this and that." Okay, so okay, so now I got those things in, Um, and uh, then I'm like, "Well, you added something to this. You want to be a co-author on the paper?" Hell no. Wow.
0: <laughs> Are you kidding? It <laughs> would destroy my career. Um, So, so, so what, do you, what do you say to someone? So obviously, we're, we're saying this, this. Blew past what would have been the normal process for vetting this before it was used on people, and now we're just like massively deploying it. What do you say to the people that say, "Okay, yeah, sure, we had to have an expedited process, but this was an absolute emergency." Like, what? What do you say to the someone that might be? Let's so let's that's just, good for benefits for arguments. Let's say well intentioned. So
2: let here's yeah. how I here's how I frame it. Okay, you're familiar with Event Two Hundred One? No. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. Um, event, so uh, you know enough about the DOD and uh, the whole defense industrial complex, and you know that we perform war games all the time. Sure, yeah. Okay? Um, that's how you do it. Yeah. It's it's it may sound nefarious, but it's actually good no, you that do they do strategic planning. What else are you going to do, yeah, right? Are you just yeah. going to uh, build a Maginot line and hope the Germans don't evade you, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. That didn't work out so good. Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, so you do wargaming. gaming, and you also do wargaming for biodefense and for outbreaks. And uh, this particular war game, there's a series of them that have been that have been done. Dark Winter is a notorious one. Mm-hmm. Event two hundred one was held at a basically a CIA shop at Johns Hopkins, uh, and it was sponsored by. Wait for it the World Economic Forum and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation.
0: <laughs> oh, I have
1: heard about this. This <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah. Now yeah. we're totally and getting have, taken down from YouTube. I have yeah, and, it, and, it happened, yeah. and it and it
2: happened and it and it happens to coincide the the meeting at Hopkins almost precisely with what appears to be the date that the virus emerged into the general population in Wuhan. Yeah. Strange coincidence.
1: Yeah. Oh my gosh. I <laughs> actually now, it took me a second to like understand what is event tool. I actually remember this now. Yeah.
2: Okay. And yeah. And there's video clips of it and everything. Okay. Yeah. And so event 201 is predicated on three, well, really four assumptions. Number one, it's coronavirus outbreak. Well, that's a rational expectation. Everybody thinks this was, sure. this proves the smoking gun. Uh, but in fact, uh, uh, SARS was uh, a major biodefense event that could have gotten much bigger yeah. and totally disrupted the Canadian economy, by the way. yeah, um, And the Canadians invested tons of money in in uh, um, respiratory virus research after that happened yeah. because it, it it decimated them for yeah. quite so, a while. So, so far, we're like, okay, makes and, sense. And, and MERS, uh, the Middle yeah. Eastern Respiratory Virus, uh, which is CAMEL-related, Um uh, it may have been engineered, blah, 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 but um, uh, uh, MERS was there, and that was also highly, highly lethal, but not particularly infectious. Uh, and, um, and SARS-1 could have been more infectious, uh, but it was considerably lethal. So it was reasonable to do a planning around sure.
1: a coronavirus outbreak. But didn't they run this simulation like what? It was like six weeks before?
2: No, it was almost pr- precisely
1: at the time when it entered the
2: population. You're assuming that it entered the population at the end of December, but it didn't. It was already uh, in the population fair, fair at that point. point. Yeah. Okay. 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 That's the party line that you're reciting. <laughs> and the data show that that's <laughs> not I, the case. I'm the yeah, right. yeah, I'm the <laughs> position. So, So they ran this simulation. They had three core assumptions, well, beyond the fact that it was a coronavirus, that it was a highly lethal infectious coronavirus, very infectious, highly lethal coronavirus, which this was not. Yeah. Okay. That's the truth. Okay. It was the Chinese propaganda that spooked everybody and convinced them that it was. And as you look back in time, um, and if you look at it through the eyes of the CCP, they were fully aware of what event 201 planning looked like because it was broadcast. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so of course they played right into the storyline with all of their propaganda of the people dying in the streets and the rapid build of the hospital and the blah, 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 blah. And I'm sure they snookered Michael Callahan uh, because I know in detail what happened there. Okay. Um, But who was CIA at the time, and then went on to manage the diamond princess yeah, and then went on to lead the build out of the tent hospitals in New York city, and then went on to establish public policy for how we were going to handle the extended care facilities and the elders. OK, just so we have that's that yeah. threat is nailed down yeah. um, uh, and reported to Bob Cadillac, who was an assistant secretary for HHS in, in overseeing uh, the assistance. He was the assistant secretary for preparedness and response. He was the head guy for biodefense. Callahan reported to him. OK, so that's that. Um, so they did this war game and they had these assumptions, highly lethal, highly infectious virus. No drugs would be able to be used to prevent its uh, the disease and death mm-hmm. okay And the third one was that they would be able to develop a highly effective and safe vaccine. All three of those things were false, okay but that was the war planning yeah. okay and they brought together people from CNN and CDC and uh, you know, All the usual characters uh, from the Council of Foreign Relations, that's the CNN arm, right? Um, And what we're saying is basically they brought together a bunch of deep staters from all sectors (laughs) um, and that had, let's say gently, um, some some preconceived biases towards a more authoritarian (laughs) type of response. And so, uh, surprise, surprise, what comes out of that planning is... A very heavy-handed authoritarian response, including pre-planning all of the stuff around um, the uh, deployment of censorship and psyops on the civilian population. All of that was pre-planned, okay. And then, then the thing happens, uh, and it comes through Matthew Pottinger, whose wife gets Deborah Burks hired, and who is an old China hand. I mean, this is just the, the events, early events in the Trump administration are fascinating brownstone institute has done a great job digging all that up but um it comes down through the national security apparatus in the trump administration and and everybody is spooked um they think this is the big one uh tony fauci has darkly muttered that trump is going to have something like this during his term right which everybody interprets as proof that tony knew that it was going to no that's not it's just you know um and uh And so lo and behold, they go to the planning that they'd already done and they grab the planning that they think is being successfully deployed in the CCP Mm -hmm. and they say, we want that, okay? Um, And then they say to basically all of their Five Eyes buddies and the European community, um, this is what works, this is what we need to do. At the time, Northern Italy is on fire because they are – Overtreating with ventilators and and it's a Northern Italy is full of old fat people, okay <laughs> and and That's they are where my family's from <laughs> they're they're dying they're dying I mean and way it's, to break the cycle you're, sure. you're you're decimating um, families and yeah. in, in Northern so everybody is on high alert over this yeah and uh, is a this lot like
1: of, January or February 2020 at this it's point January okay
2: okay yeah. January February is is right in the window yeah okay um and uh. And the CCP doesn't do a lockdown as they head into the Chinese New Year, okay, which is the traditional diaspora. Yeah. Okay. And so people from Wuhan fly all over the world, including to DC, yeah. where a client that I had at the time um, had uh, members that it was a, a company that does consulting on regulatory affairs. Um, uh, I met with people who had just recently flown over from Wuhan. Okay. And by yeah. the way. Shortly thereafter, I got the virus. Did I get it from them or did I get it from the fact that I was in Boston right across the street from the biotech company where the Boston outbreak first started Mm -hmm. um, going to an MIT conference on drug discovery? I don't know, but I got Wuhan 1 and it was wicked. Anybody that says that this virus was nothing has has had the benefit of being exposed to Omicron and not Wuhan (laughs) 1 or Delta. Um, So bless them. Uh, and they should thank themselves that that's the case because <laughs> Wuhan one was wicked. Yeah, um, I was in bad shape. I could hardly walk up. I couldn't. I couldn't toss hay to the horses anymore. Yeah. I could barely walk up a hill. Um, it hit me hard, and uh, so uh, the the gubbies set up this little in in group commission, and it's classic groupthink. It, they were. It was composed of you know. Here's a fun fact. Debbie Burks was Tony Fauci's postdoc. Okay, This is all an in-group. Um, uh, and in classic group think, uh, which is derived from a series of major American foreign policy failures, and basically they just recapitulated the same damn thing yeah. again.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say as you were talking about this, it reminds me of a lot of foreign policy decisions.
2: Bay of pigs, blah, blah, blah. blah. We can go yeah. on and on. Vietnam, it no more.
0: Iraq, Afghanistan. Yeah, great.
2: I mean, it just goes on and on. That's, yeah, I got, to, that,
0: I got to participate in some of these.
2: <laughs> yeah, my wife, you know the expression Dunning-Kruger effect? Yeah. Okay, my wife makes the point that we need a new term. We need Dunning-Kruger for governments, <laughs> not individuals, right? Yeah. Because they absolutely, gubbies think that they're smarter than they really are. Yeah. Um, and that is absolutely something that happened. And if you go down the original checklist uh, in the book um, – uh, victims of Groupthink by Irving Janus. Mm-hmm. Um, you will see that almost every single thing that he identifies as a key characteristic of groupthink in communities happened here.
0: Well, and can I, I let me let me do this real quick because I want I want to do kind of a sum up. We've got some people that want to ask some questions as well, but I think this is this is really important to label because I think one of the reasons why. When somebody says what what you're talking about right now, or, or when somebody tries to caricature what you're saying, they always go down this rabbit hole of like wild conspiracy theories. And and here's what I heard you just say. You just said, okay, let, let's essentially let's set aside any, any crazy talk. Right, we're not talking about a bunch of cabal that got together and decided, you know, we're going to kill a bunch of people in the world with it. This isn't this isn't Specter in a James Deep, Bond. Depopulation. Film. Yeah, this isn't this isn't depopulation. This isn't Specter in a James Bond film. This is something that anybody who has worked in government for any period of time can recognize. It was, we have an event going on. There's a particular process that we generally use with respect to war gaming in order to plan for everything from national security contingencies to medical contingencies to natural disaster contingencies. And we come up with plans. Right. And, and when something pops up, it's like, oh, let's take this plan off the show. Thank shelf. God. Uh, yeah. <laughs> let, let's take this plan off the show. I'm so glad we did our job as the government and we, we anticipated that something like this could happen. Well, it turns out that as this is happening, there's a, a plan, what well, we'll even call it a regularly scheduled plan, right. To be able to look at this and come up with recommend you, you, you always operate. Cause if it's not happened yet, you operate off of ins- assumptions, Whenever we would plan operations, we would usually break down into teams. However, and, and you know, criteria.
2: you know, because of your training yeah. as a leader in in SOCOM, yeah, that um, the first rule is. The first time you encounter the enemy, yeah, you revise your plan. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. No, no, no plan. The quote, right? no, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. But, but you're you're right. What happens is, is that, and, and this, and is they the part, did not
2: do that just to put the point on it.
0: Yeah, and I and I think this is this is important, right? So again, step one was is we're gonna we're gonna look at our various assumptions. We're gonna come up with plans to deal with those assumptions. And again, because now you start to look at incentive structures. And this is the part that is so important because I think a lot of people, when they look at government, what they assume is we got a lot of different experts, a lot of different perspectives coming around and arguing about all this stuff. Okay. Maybe to some degree, but the problem is, is that what it's no, motivated, they actively
2: excluded that type of thing, like Scott Atlas when because he it's in, like Peter Navarro.
0: Well that, but here's what I'm saying. It's motivated. Ultimately government decisions will be motivated by politics Right, it's inevitable. It's one of the reasons why you don't want to give the government so much power. And, and politics doesn't
2: just mean D and R. No,
0: no, it doesn't. And, and so now you have a situation. It can be
2: administrative politics within an agency.
0: Oh, absolutely. It, yeah. Anybody that believes that bureaucracies don't have a mind of their own or interests of their own is, again, is not paying attention. In fact, Thomas Sowell has a great story about that's what that's what red pilled Thomas Sowell from being a Marxist, right, to a free market economist. But th- th- here's the point I'm making. They come up with a plan. It makes sense that they would institute the plan. The other thing to understand about politics, whenever you have- And and you've got a president who's sitting there
2: going, oh shit, I don't know what's going on here. Yeah. I have no clue about this. Well, and you're running up on a re-election
0: year, right? So all of these things factor into, and, and what does everybody do? What does every voter do in a crisis? The government needs to do something. If you are perceived as not taking action in the midst of a crisis, you will not be forgiven at the polls.
2: And and meanwhile, yeah, uh, Chibi Carter. Yeah. (laughs) Or or if you take ineffective action, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, And meanwhile, you've got the press. um, running the business model of fear porn yeah which is incredibly lucrative yeah it's lucrative from CNN down to the smallest podcaster yeah. fear porn works yeah. it sells clicks and in and, and you know pillows oh, yeah. or whatever the hell it is you want to sell <laughs> yeah. right um, so the so the gut so the press is busy pushing fear porn CNN's ratings go through the roof they got what's what could be better you've got Trump and a public health crisis. It's like, let's just mint money, yeah. right? Okay, but it's more than that um, because the, um, the Great Reset is real.
0: So I, I, want to, I want to preface something before we go into this because this is going to lead us into the next thing that I want to talk about is what, what can we look at going in the future? Because I, I think you're right. And, and this, is a, this is a big problem that I have when I'm talking to other conservatives about this. Because again, it it becomes very, very common to put the person on the other side of this into the position of the Bond villain. And, and look, for and Klaus K- Schwab yeah. is like oh central God. casting.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't invent he him. He dresses yeah. like
0: a bond. <laughs> oh, my way. gosh. Like, I just, like, I, I expected. We did, it, we did an
1: episode last year on the World <laughs> Economic like Forum meeting. No. <laughs> and, like, he got up and he's like, we are the ones who define the future. And he was, and, like, and decked they're, out. They're,
2: that, so their latest thing is they're going to accelerate Agenda 2030,
1: just to let you know. Yeah.
2: Well, and, and you've got this character. Who's his mentor? You know that one? For Klaus Schwab? No. Henry Kissinger.
0: Oh gosh. Oh, that's not surprising. That's not that's not helpful. It's all real. Well and but the part the but here's the thing, when when people hear this, they automatically want to and, and then it gets caricatured very, very easily. The point that I try to explain to people is like, look, it this isn't crazy. Okay, what this is is these people are operating, right? And and by these and people And have been
2: operating for decades. Yeah, the,
0: these people and by these people I mean Influential people within the World Economic Forum, within the World Health Organization, so uh, yeah. we can go on that. Well, and, and again, I don't even want to go into that. I just want to say there there are plenty of people um, within society that their worldview starts with the it starts with the presupposition that when there's a problem or when there's a disparity or when there's inequity, whatever it is, that's a result. Of a failure of government planning, redistribution, Pol- and, and organization, yeah. right? They they have and a, political philosophy. Exactly, they have a they have a predisposition towards central planning. Now, when you put it that and, way,
2: and central command economy solutions.
0: Yes. Oh, yes. And again, when you put it that way, it's like okay, I'm, I'm not I'm not saying oh they're all commies. What I'm saying is is that people that have a predisposition towards central planning, command and control economies, they look at it as utilitarianism,
2: the, best way. Yeah. the ends justify the means.
0: They look at it as the best way and they malthusianism,
2: which is what's behind the climate change and, crisis.
0: You know, yeah, and and when you add all that up together, what you get is not the evil guy trying to take over the world out of greed or maleficence. what you get is what CS Lewis described as the moral busybody, they think they're heroes, that will torment you without end because they do so with the approval of their own conscience. They believe they are doing what's best. And, and
2: you also have what Han Art in Eichmann in Jerusalem called the banality of evil. Yeah. Okay. So if, if you'll allow me, I Which, did a sub stack on, on what is my version of what, ha- what went down here. And the only way I could express it is using Venn diagrams. And I immediately got hammered because <laughs> Kamala Harris likes Venn diagrams. Yeah, and everybody yeah. got so wrapped up with Kamala Harris <laughs> that they didn't pay attention to the message. Yeah. Okay. In my version of what the hell went down here, um, I've got three major intersecting circles. One is failure to think, okay, which Hannah Arndt attributes as the cause of the banality of evil. Eichmann was not, he did not fit the stereotype of truly evil. He did not come across as a truly evil person. And yet he did some of the most evil things in the history of the 20th century. Okay. And what he was, was a bureaucrat trying to advance himself in a Nazi bureaucracy, doing what he was told and trying to do it to the best of his possible. His abilities, just like the railroad workers that were trying to streamline and optimize the railroads so that you could ship more Jews to the ovens. Okay? They were doing their job. Have you ever
1: read the book Ordinary Men? No. Um Jordan Pearson talks about it a lot. It's about basically the men that the the SS recruited to to conduct the Holocaust in Poland. And they was like your your neighbor, your your the milkman. Ended up, you know, committing mass genocide, the postman. Yeah. So, so
2: this is the point of Hannah Arendt, the banality of evil stems from the failure to think and recognize the evil that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So banality of evil and failure to think, I think failure to think in particular is one of the big ones. Another one is complex systems. We now have such a complex interlaced economy, globalized economy, and part of it has been driven by the dollar and uh, Pax Americana and all of that, okay? So we now have an environment of incredibly complex systems, including government. We have the largest organization in the history of the world is the U.S. government, okay? Incredibly complex systems. And there are emergent phenomena that come out of complex systems when they get poked when they face a crisis. The third major circle is absolutely nefarious actions. There, you cannot deny the nefarious actions that took place and resulted in, among other things, the greatest upward transfer of wealth in modern history, and the decimation of the middle class, okay? And that, Ernst Wolf, it led on that. Ed Dowd talks about it a lot. Yeah. Um, we talk about it in the book. There is no question that we've had manipulation by the central banks and the oh, yeah. Bank we, of International Settlements. All of those, podcast. all of that stuff is real. And and the problem is, is you go down those rabbit holes, and of course Klaus and and the WEF, which is a trade organization of the thousand largest companies in the world. It is truly corporatist. It advocates for public-private partnerships, which is a euphemism for corporatism, which, according to Mussolini, is a euphemism for fascism, okay? That we can argue about, and they've tried to destroy the meaning of the word fascism, but fascism is corporatism, okay? And that's what's gone on. That's what the WEF absolutely supports, but it's corporatist with a Marxist flavor. That's what it is. You can look at it as a political
1: scientist,
2: if you examine it, that's what it is. If no, no, no! It's just the, stakeholder capitalism.
1: Yeah, well, right. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor Malone, we've talked about that yeah. exact same topic in like five or six episodes on this podcast. It's a major
2: focus in the book. Yeah. Um, and by the way, just to say it, um, Steve Bannon reprimanded me for going down that rabbit hole months and months and months ago. He kept saying, "Stay in your lane, Robert. You're about Fauci and and." And the medical side, and I'm like, no, "We're oh, on the same
1: page there." You cannot,
2: you <laughs> cannot understand all this without going there. Yeah. And the problem is, when you start running down those rabbit holes, then you get into the creature from Jekyll Island and the Rothschilds and the big banking families. And um, you, you, here's a fun one. Do you know who first announced the Great Reset?
0: I know,
1: Klaus Schwab, right? Yeah. Wrong. The current King George. Huh. So oh, there's a whole. Well, he nother- used to be really into before he became king. Of course, yeah. he he it was Charles, right? Yeah, Jack, yeah Charles. He he became he was really involved in that he, type. He of is stuff. totally
2: in on the wef. Yeah. Okay, yeah. and so there's another whole theory of the case that behind all of this, the nefarious action part, yeah, um, is uh, ancient European aristocracy that still has major assets. Mm-hmm. Um, and still has an interest in doing what they've always done.
0: Well, and and I, look, I I go back to whenever, whenever, whenever things come up and whenever people start to, again, try to caricature something as conspiratorial, what I like to do is I like to say, well, okay, can we just, can we just take a historically accurate view of history? And can we can we actually have a historically accurate Which view? Which is tough to do of, because of, it's all spun. Well, sure, but yeah. but of economic policy, like for yeah. instance, when when you say fascism now, what people think is militarism, nationalism, and racism. Okay, well, the the problem is is that some of those could could easily be cons- could be components of of fascism, but that doesn't even make up the majority of what fascist ideology was, and it certainly doesn't make up the majority of what fascist economic policy was. I mean, I, I once read off, um, I once, what I did was I took 10 statements and four of them were from the fascist manifesto. And then other statements were from, you know, um, Democrat party leaders, Republican party leaders, the Democrat creed. And I read these off and I said, would you consider these to be left wing or right wing? That was the only question I asked of, of these college students and every single fascist statement I read off, they all caricatured as left wing or progressive in nature. And I said, okay, now I'm not claiming... Well, it
2: was the German Socialist yeah. Party.
0: Well, it's like, I'm not claiming if you believe in universal healthcare, you're a fascist. I am saying that fascists believe in universal healthcare. And it is amazing to me that people that are studying these things have no concept, or not studying, people that are using these terms have no concept. So again, when which I... Which is
2: why in the book, every time I introduced a new political term, yeah. like in, inverted totalitarianism from Sheldon Aden, which is largely what we have right now. When we talk about the administrative state, what we're talking about is inverted totalitarianism, as Sheldon Adelson defined it, yeah. uh, professor at uh, UC Santa Cruz, okay, um, and- uh, Not exactly
0: every- a bastion of conservative thought.
2: <laughs> um, uh, and yeah, right, yeah. okay, but everything is, it's, it's upside down clown world, right? N- n- left and right well, but, don't but, matter but, anymore. But- so my point is, every time I introduced a political term in the book, I took care to go back to political science literature and say, okay, this is what this term really means because there's been such a concerted effort to distort our language and weaponize it. And and throughout this, that's the beauty of what's happened over the last three years is for, let's be generous and say 25% of the population um, that has become awake can see this stuff now um whereas before we were we were just like you said we were all thinking this is conspiracy theory first time i heard about the great reset i was like oh, i can't go there it was yeah. a <laughs> film crew on my on my farm and i was just like ah i don't know anything about that that sounds a little weird um, and then this person mary holland came to the farm together with Meryl Nass, Mary Holland happens to be the CEO of Children's Health Defense. And she started just jabbering on about uh, The Great Reset and Klaus Schwab. And my wife and I were just like, I don't know about Mary, you know, she's kind of <laughs> over the top yeah. there. Um, and then, but we, we, then we read the bloody book, Klaus Schwab's The Great Reset. And we're like, oh, number one, this is real. Number two, this guy is not very smart. Um, and and all the stuff he's talking about is like gibberish psychology yeah. and economics. It's it's populist. Yes. Um but yeah. uh um it's it's real. These yeah. these people are all in on this and the problem is they control so many resources mm-hmm. that they can impose their will on the rest of us. And I'm convinced that at the core of the WEF's agendas in pushing forward these new versions, you know. Um, the fourth industrial Revolution, transhumanism yeah. and transsexualism, its uh, mm-hmm. cousin, um and uh, climate change driven by uh, human activities, etc. It goes on and on. There's a little wheel diagram that they have about all their policy positions and how they all interact. by the way, it's mm-hmm. fascinating to look at. Um, so it's basically the common script yeah. that they're all supposed to speak out. um and as as you go through this, you see that, um, for some strange reason, Bobby Kennedy just addressed this like yesterday in a in a talk. Um, what they do is they deploy this new threat, mm-hmm. and by the way, BlackRock basically controls the worldwide press now, as opposed to you know and everything else. A lot of influence. Okay, yeah. um, is is they they launch this new threat scenario. Okay, we get blasted with fear porn around it, mm-hmm. and they just happen to have their version of the solution. Oh, this this horrible thing is going to happen, okay? <laughs> and we can save you from yeah, it, okay? Yeah. All you need to do is buy our stuff, yeah. Teslas, um, you know, windmills. And then if the econom if the economists and the physicists get in and dig in and start running the numbers, they're like, none of this stuff makes sense. Yeah. Okay. It does, It's it, it, we may or may not have a energy and climate crisis. We will eventually, mm-hmm. I suppose, but are these solutions anywhere close to anything other than a half-baked propaganda effort to sell us stuff, okay? And if you look at what the WEF puts forward again and again and again, what you see is the stuff that they're pushing as the solution they happen to have or their members have, their leading members, have proprietary intellectual positions or major industrial efforts to develop those like, um, you know, eating crickets, or, or whatever, okay? They've already placed their bets. And why not? Because if you think it through, imagine you're Bill Gates. Okay, you're sitting on a potload of money. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you, for some reason, are not satisfied. You want more. Yeah. You want more power control for whatever it, it is that makes you tick. I have no idea what is in his brain. Um, it, all I know is it's not healthy. Um, but, um, so he's sitting there and he does things like he funds the government and it's really the five eyes Alliance to, um, engage in planning for a biodefense outbreak. Mm -hmm. So he has insider front row seat in guiding the decisions the government makes about what it's going to do, what it's war game planning is. And then He takes that insider information and he makes strategic investments. Mm -hmm. That is the ultimate
0: insider trading play. Well, and and here's what I think is interesting is that when we, and again, it's, it's not as if like just now, you didn't say Bill Gates did this. What you said was Bill Gates was in a position where the incentive structures, right. And, and the investment decisions seem to line up and it (laughs) happens
2: to coincide with his behavior. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not saying, um, that it's a duck yeah. just because it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck. I'm yeah. just saying, Hey guys, you know, it kind of looks like a duck. It walks like a duck and it yeah. quacks like a duck and you make your own decision. Yeah, We might have some duck like <laughs> behavior going on
0: that we might want to perhaps classify as a duck. Yeah. Well, and, and this is, again, this is the part where kind of moving into what, what do we see happening out in the horizon? So let, let me, let me lead off yeah. with this. And then I, I promise we're going to get to the questions. Um, but I, I think we need to kind of complete this. Thought yeah. So, so where does go this through. go? So, like, and so, I'm getting
2: a lot of that now as this thing is winding down.
0: Well, well, can I, can I say, let me, let me kind of key something up here. So obviously I'm in the state legislature. We're, we're looking at, okay, how did Virginia do this? How could we have done it better? We're looking at three main categories. We're looking at our, our healthcare response, our education response, hmm. and our regulatory response. And, the, the attitude that I take toward a lot of this, and, and it's amazing because it's almost a, it, it's in the midst of something like Corona, it would be considered political suicide to take the stance I generally do. And that is, because I've been asked, what, what should the government have done? And I said, okay. As, as I look at what was going on with coronavirus, and I don't claim to be an expert in all these areas. But as
2: a person who has a strong background in special operations. Well,
0: well and, and <laughs> let, I'll even take that out for a moment. Really what this comes down to is an understanding, what I believe to be, an understanding of how incentive structures work.
2: And and the, and the and by the way, a fundamentally conservative point of view on the proper role of government.
0: Yes. And and so I look at it as, so for instance, we we identified, I would say, fairly quickly. And I, by fairly quickly, I mean within several months, that there was a particular population group, right? So I don't, I don't subscribe to this idea that we shouldn't have taken it seriously. It's a question of what does that mean? And from my, my political philosophy is to say, well, each individual is going to have some personal responsibility with respect to how they, how they determine their course of actions. However, if they have good information, well, then they can make better decisions. We have incomplete information coming in. Okay, does that mean that the government takes a heavy hand and says we shut everything down until No, I, I will I will never take that I will never take that position because I believe that there is so much damage that is done as a result of that. Well in the in the the literature was there. Well, and so here's the point. Like I, I explained to somebody once that okay, if, if Nixon charge, I, I see coronavirus taking place. What what I start to do is I say, okay, what we need is is various perspectives from from various fields and people that are not connected to the same incentive structures and, and whatever we come up with as far as recommendations, individuals are going to get to decide for themselves, which ones that they want to partake in.
2: Because we happen to live under this document called the constitution bill of rights. Yeah.
0: Well, and and that's, and that's (laughs) the biggest, the biggest problem that we have. And this is something that I, I get in battles with colleagues all the time. Because they will ask me, what is the solution? I always would respond, I'm like, we don't deal in solutions, we deal in trade-offs. And and until you understand that what we're dealing isn't a trade-off, and if the thing you must do in order to do something ends up causing more damage, you are responsible for that in a very unique way because you denied people the ability to make their own decisions, understanding that some of them would have made bad ones, right? Most people... I think would have said, you know what? I don't know what this can do. And oh, by the way, I have comorbidities. I'm more likely to be a- adversely affected by this than maybe that's someone that's 22 and in perfect health. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose to self-quarantine. Other people might have chosen to go around and lick doorknobs. I don't know. But what I do know is that if I if I mandate what the policy is going to be and people die as a result of that mandate, I am responsible for that in a way that I never could be if I would have said, "Ladies and gentlemen, there's a there's a whole host of experts on this. There's a whole host of ways that you could potentially deal with this. We don't have all the information."
2: You know what that what you just expressed is humility, <laughs> um, and that is what has been missing all yeah. the way through this. Is is a sense of humility, mm-hmm. um, and the other one is this this I, I mean a lot of this now, many people are migrating to. Um, seeking we reaching for biblical metaphors and in fundamental language and concepts that come out of the judeo-christian ethics tradition Mm -hmm. uh, because we don't have language to describe what's happened here other than that that seems to be the collective cultural wisdom of millennia that's embodied in that that group of of thinking Mm -hmm. Um, that comes down to things like integrity, res- you know, h- respect for human dignity, um, uh, respect for community, mm-hmm. and and these are the three things I've tried to hammer on all the way through this. It's what I talked about in my Lincoln Memorial speech. Yeah. Um, is it, but at the core of that, I, I love what you just said because it expresses your acknowledgement that in an, an environment, in a battlefield. This is what this is. Um, it's a battlefield. Um, where you do not have a clear, um, you don't have sufficient intelligence as you never do. Mm -hmm. You have to be very moderate in your actions and you have to risk mitigate Mm -hmm. and, and you have to be, um, uh, humble in, in acknowledging, uh, if you don't acknowledge the limits of your intelligence, and I'm talking about intelligence in a, in a, Battlefield or military sense, um, you will make unilateral decisions that will cost you and your forces, your combatants, um, uh, um, major losses. I mean, this is this gets and it all comes back to Sun Tzu and the Art of War. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really what, when we're in a situation like this, a crisis situation, we're really kind of on a warfare footing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, by the way, that's, that's the pitch that Bannon makes for why Trump should be reelected, is he's, a, he's an experienced wartime president because of what he's been through here. You know, whether or not you believe that, that's the, that's the pitch right now. Um, but uh, I love the way you just framed this. Uh, and um, what, what we had was incredible arrogance. The position that you just expressed was the position of three of the top academic epidemiologists in the world who worked together with my buddy um, at Brownstone Institute, um, who uh, came up with this document called the, the Great Barrington Declaration. Yeah. And what happened? They got maliciously defamed by, the, by Francis Collins and Tony Fauci, intentionally, who deployed all of their assets in the press to uh, ridicule and defame these people and to marginalize them. One of them has lost their job. Um, the other one is hanging by his teeth, Jay Bhattacharya, at Stanford. I don't know how he survived for yeah, so long. Was... Wasn't he
1: banned on Twitter? And then he got yeah. brought back when yeah. Elon purchased no, the actually, he, he was the person that was first brought in by
2: Elon because mm-hmm. he's there in San Francisco Bay, um, you know, at Stanford, at Palo Alto. And he was the one that was first brought in by Elon um, to start looking at the Twitter files data and discuss it with you. Yeah, Elon. he
1: worked with Matt Taibbi on that a little bit. And the stuff that came out there, I, I, it's part of the reason that I'm really glad that we were able to bring Dr. Malone on. Because the thing that you became so famous for in a lot of people's eyes was the Joe Rogan podcast, which was aired while Twitter was still owned by this group yeah. of people that had been the And I had government. been
2: deplatformed literally two days before from Twitter and LinkedIn simultaneously for some reason. Yeah. Um, Amazing how that works. Uh, and, and then went on Rogan and, and blew the circuits. I mean, I've, I've heard it's well north of, five, of 50 million. I've heard 100 million. And that was with Spotify. I mean, here's a fun one. Try to Google. Robert Malone and Joe Rogan podcast oh, and pull I have. Up anything <laughs> other than all the attacks, right? Yeah. You'll see all the attacks. Oh, yeah. You can go on Spotify and use their search engine and search Rogan and Malone. You will never find it. You have to know the specific number of that episode in order to find it on Spotify. And then there was Neil Young and you know all all of yeah. the Laurel Canyon stuff. Um, it was an amazing time.
0: So what do you, what do you think... What do you think are the other proper lessons that we need to learn from what happened and, and maybe primarily the government's response to it? And this,
2: this feeds right into where are we going? Yeah. Um, so, and I'm getting this a lot on podcasts now. Um, what do you, you know, they're again asking me to apply the crystal ball. (laughs) Um, and, uh, which I don't, you know, I don't, I, I say this is the limits of my crystal ball and there's some things that I can't see and some things that I'm pretty sure I can see. Um, uh, is Tony Fauci going to be held accountable? Probably not. He is really skilled. Yeah. He said, I don't remember 160 times in sworn testimony before the attorney generals. Okay. And then there's this recent, uh, you know, um, apology tour that he's doing with the New York times and CNN where he says, well, I really didn't make any of those decisions. They just, you know, I didn't actually shut down any schools, yeah. blah, blah, blah. You know, it's not me. It's yeah. Somebody out there, some committee somewhere yeah um okay is tony gonna get held accountable no um are they gonna learn from this are they gonna adapt their behavior change their behavior no what they're gonna do is they're gonna double down the next time the conclusion that i predict they're gonna draw from this is we have to be even more authoritarian next time we blew it because we didn't come out fast and early enough with our hardcore censoring and uh in all of the fifth generation warfare tactics. We were delayed in that, and we let the opponents build up some momentum. And next time, we've got all, now what's happened is that not only now do we have a biodefense industrial complex, we have a censorship industrial complex. We have a huge body of employees throughout media and and, uh, corporate uh, IT and social media and the government Mm -hmm. who owe their jobs to on a daily basis, um, down to the level of functioning as contractor, ex-DOD, CYWAR specialists that are busy on Twitter and in the other platforms spewing hate, Mm -hmm. Um, that that is now their business, what they're doing to make a living. Um, Those people are not going to go away. That is never what happens in the bureaucracy. The only way that this is ever gonna change, and it requires a Congress that to grow a pair. Um, I think I can say that on your, on <laughs> yeah, your show, yeah, we'll, we'll, um, we'll allow it. <laughs> uh, and, and, uh, and stop the deployment of military grade cy war technology on civilian populations, because in a battlefield in which there's no distinction between civilian and warfighter, mm-hmm. there's no ethical boundaries. Anything goes, the ends justify the means. They will do anything. I'm a poster child. I'm not whining, okay? I am not a victim. I refuse to be a victim, okay? I'm a warrior. I choose to be a warrior, okay? Um, but my case demonstrates, as you're going over, they will say and do anything in service of their agenda. They have no ethics.
0: There well, is I, no I would, boundaries. So I would I would argue, see, this is the one thing I might disagree with you on. I I think they don't. I think they have a completely different moral structure than the traditional one that we're used to, and I, I think whereas, like my moral structure is is founded in Judeo-Christian values, and so there's an objective, there's a, there's a standard for objective truth, and there's an absta- a standard for objective right. moral right. law. It, but if you replace that with utilitarian, you know, Malthusianism, yes, Malthusianism uh, with well, then, Marxism, thrown then in. when they shut you down they have engaged in one of the greatest moral acts. Yes, they do they see that. Possibly way. that's do.
2: exactly how they see it. And it's, by the way, it's, it was, it was, uh, tested in clinical trials at Yale university. Mm-hmm. Okay. The messaging that you heard that guilt tripped the entire society. If you don't take the jab, you're going to kill grandma or grandma, big bird, or you recall, yeah. or all of that deployment. Okay. That was, that was tested in, in a 600 person prospective randomized clinical trial with 10 groups at Yale University, which will not disclose who funded it. Um, I know you're shocked about that too. <laughs> um, and uh, which developed, tested, field tested over a six month period, randomized clinical trial different messaging strategies to get the population to both accept vaccine and to act to influence peers to accept the vaccine. The propaganda was pre-cooked and tested before they ever had a vaccine, okay? In a world in which the government feels that it's acceptable to deploy fifth-generation war technology on the general populace so that they're controlling everything you hear, think, feel, believe in every channel they can because it's all for the good. Yep. Um, then the whole idea of personal sovereignty becomes completely anachronistic. It's an obsolete concept. Yeah. The thing that the, our way of government is built upon founded upon that we have independent, um, a free agency mm-hmm. for each of us to act in a democratic representative, uh, system, um, becomes completely obsolete if the government feels that it's acceptable to deploy modern psychological technology on the general populace on the citizenry to control everything they are experiencing thinking and feeling
1: is this where mass formation psychosis comes no, into no
2: that's i just feel that was like yesterday's podcast <laughs> um so uh um no mass formation is different um uh, this does have to do with Crowder group formation, Kelly Victory, uh, and I was on Kelly and Dr. Drew last night uh, talking about exactly this. thing. I mean, this shows that this is what everybody's thinking about yeah. right now. Yeah. So mass formation, and I, I, I could set you up to have a conversation with Matthias Desmond, who is here, by the way. Too bad you missed him, mm-hmm. um, uh, from Belgium, who came up with a book uh, that is the genesis of that, okay. um, the psychological basis of totalitarianism. Um, and is a good friend. Uh, Matthias' thesis, which is really driven from Hannah Arndt's uh, book on uh, f- uh, Nazi fascism. And, I
1: have read that one. Okay, so, yeah.
2: so the origins of, of her book on the, on the origins of totalitarianism is the predecessor to Matthias' book about mass formation. And uh, the, the mass formation thesis is that um, when there are certain conditions in society that arise from time to time, where people become decoupled society depersonalizes individuals people feel like they're no longer attached to a a social structure they develop free-floating anxiety um they in their you know the whole lot of predicates that go into this like bullshit jobs it's a Formal term, bull, bullshit jobs. Yeah. Okay, and and uh, Matthias makes the case in Belgium that about eighty percent of the employment are bullshit jobs. What are bullshit jobs? The TSA checking your shoes is a bullshit job. Okay, <laughs> I mean, it, it, what does it contribute? Right. Yeah. Um, the there's a whole bunch of of the you know the paperwork that we have to go through. Yeah. A lot of the stuff that is not contributing value. To society, in an economic sense, is functionally a BS job. Okay, yeah, make work and jobs. When, when, yeah. yeah, make work jobs is another way to put it. Okay, so people that are engaged in those know that that's what they're doing. They have no sense of purpose. They have no sense of connection. That these tools that we have—the cell phone and the tube and and the internet—are are incredibly depersonalizing. So people live now in this environment where they have this abnormal decoupling from their normal social connections that keep them grounded and sane by the way yeah by the way and when you have that situation people develop free floating anxiety and anger they're angry because things don't make sense especially if you're having a period of rapid change and the bitcoiners advocate that the most a severe uh version of rapid change that gives rise to this is hyperinflation by the way and you can track the major social upheavals they are almost all preceded we by periods of, of hyperinflation. <laughs> yeah. um, okay so so there's that um but you have these preconceived th- these these pre-existing conditions that cause depersonalization decoupling from normal social structures free flooding anxiety anger um, a sense that things don't make sense they're not fair um, and, and then, if into that environment, if you have a lot of that, and you do, the, the stats on depression and, oh, yeah. and all of and that are huge, okay, yeah. um, particularly in the United States, uh, and you have that environment, and then you have a threat. An external threat you know could be martians yeah okay whatever it's the you know russian pushing down the the button whatever okay it absolutely happened in the early 60s um and bobby kennedy talked about that mcnamara and his father would talk about the mass psychosis that had happened in the in the face of the threat of the bomb yeah um that swept america with all the bomb shelters Mm -hmm. okay my dad had a bomb shelter I, i don't know about your folks um uh, so, yeah, your folks were more sane because uh, <laughs> you weren't living in California. Um, uh, but, uh, and, and having a dad that worked in the uh, defense industry. So um, So an event happens, a threat event happens. And what will happen is a large fragment of society that was previously disassociated from each other, feeling these forces of being isolated and disconnected suddenly they have a common enemy Mm -hmm. and they have a common cause and they suddenly have a community Mm -hmm. the community that is appropriately responding to x threat Mm -hmm. okay and they focus all their anger on that threat okay and now they have a community Mm -hmm. they have an explanation for their pain Mm -hmm. um their existential pain Mm -hmm. um they have a potential solution and this is perfect environment for anybody who is seeking political power to interject themselves into that environment somebody or some organization or whatever okay to move in and by the way these conditions can be set up artificially
1: or they can pre-exist and you can exploit them yeah okay but they're a perfect setup for exploitation we've talked about this before with Nick and I have had a conversation. Are Are you familiar with Yuri Bezmenov? Yeah, a little bit. Yep. Yeah, because this sounds very similar. Yeah, no, a lot
2: of it. A lot of it comes. So these European intellectuals have all talked to each other and read each other, Solzhenitsyn, et cetera. Yeah. Um. And uh. So, so that's that's the thesis, is that when this happens, people functionally a, a large fraction of the population functionally becomes hypnotized, mm-hmm. and can be readily manipulated. Uh, and in fact, that has happened, okay? And we've seen it, the craziness that happened. You know, they invested $10 billion in having Broadway stars and comedians on the television and musicians and influencers go jabber, 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 get the shot, right? Right. And what you probably don't realize if you're more stateside and not traveling is the same thing happened at the same time with the same force throughout Europe and the entire Western world. It happened in South Africa at the same time. Okay. In in I was recently in Vienna, okay, cultural capital of the world. They're all about musicians and you know, singing and yeah. and, and their instruments, et cetera all of the musicians and influencers in Vienna got paid mm-hmm. to promote the jab. Yeah. Okay. It happened simultaneously throughout the world. Okay. When you hear that, then your mind has to kind of open up and say, oh, this isn't about Donald Trump mm-hmm. or Joe Biden or the Democrats or, oh, this is, this is big. Mm-hmm. This is transnational. Uh, and is harmonized. And by the way, the same exact thing is happening with the transsexuals. It is being pushed in the same way in schools in South Africa right now. Mm -hmm. Okay. This also is harmonized. And as, as Bobby and others have pointed out, it has no rational basis in public policy. There is no public policy, valid public policy agenda that is advanced by mutilating children. I mean, we used to think that clitorectomy was the ultimate example oh, I, I of was in the things- General
0: Assembly when we passed a ban on it, a legal ban on it in Virginia.
2: Oh, well, bless your heart, sugar. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So um, that it's it. And it's another thing that is being har- promoted in a harmonized, globalized fashion, the same way as global climate change and everything else. Um, there is a outside force. Mm-hmm. Who it is, I don't know um, you know, is it, is it a person? Is it the bloody CIA? I I don't know. I don't know who it is. I don't know what it is, but I think that I know it's there. And the other thing is I know that it is evil. Mm -hmm. There is evil in the world. I, I hesitated for a long time using that word, but I'm noticing that it's becoming the norm. We don't have another word to express what is happening. You know, Tucker Carlson talked about this Downward pressure in this Heritage Foundation speech that where he got so worked up the other day. Yeah, um, that is that we can all feel. It's everywhere, um, and it's hard. It's hard to know. Is it? You know. Oh, it must be Joe Biden. Yeah. Oh, come on. Yeah. If you know who yeah. Joe Biden is, there's no way it's Joe yeah. Biden, okay? And, and, oh, it must be Klaus Schwab. No, it can't be Klaus Schwab. Yeah. Klaus Schwab is a clown, yeah. okay? He is the intellectual firepower there. All of his major things, including the whole um, social you know, movement that he's trying to push, um, uh, is all pirated from other people. He didn't come up with those ideas.
0: Yeah, not a lot of
2: original thoughts coming out of Klaus. Yeah. Um and and so you have to say, okay, it's something bigger than that, mm-hmm. um, and that's that's it, it's so big and so pervasive, it's no wonder people talk about Lucifer, mm-hmm. and and those kinds of things. We, we haven't anybody that's rational has trouble wrapping their hands around this. Um, as you dig into it, it's real. It's there. Mm-hmm. Um, who's, what's driving it is it an emergent phenomena. Um, or, or is it something, you know, or or are we just in a really dark time? Is this the fourth turning? I mean, there's all these different versions of the storyline. Um, but it's, but there is no denying that it's happening.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and I, no, I think that's a good point. I, I think what it, what it comes down to is when we talk about, I think we talk about like the next pandemic or the next, anything really, what, what this thing taught me was that, it, yeah, there, there could be another, there could be another virus, right? And we'll get to some questions on that There could will be. be. There could, yeah, sure. This is going to happen, right? This yeah. is, this is, this is a part of the natural historical progress of, of it's, it's biological actually, entities it is, interacting in, with in, one another.
2: In, in, in a healthy world, there's been some great essays lately and they're absolutely grounded in data. Mm-hmm. Okay by this obsessiveness over trying to create a total security environment mm-hmm. like we see in suburbia. You yeah. see any
0: kids out there playing? Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's gotten nuts. <laughs> okay.
2: Yeah. Um, uh, is What happens is that, so there's a great study recently out of Finland, I think it is, where they have a Finnish city, former Finnish city, that was on the uh, opposite side of the Soviet curtain, of the Iron Curtain, and then a parallel one that was on the Finnish side, okay? And so the Finnish side was subjected to the Euro- usual European uh, culture and environment in terms of cleanliness yeah. and germs and and all of that, you know, medical care. And the other side was basically traditional old Finland because yeah. uh, they didn't have any money, and, yeah. and the Soviets didn't give a care about them yeah. anyhow, and they just, you know, lived in the dirt like they always have, very yeah. poor. Yeah. And their allergy rate is like 10% of what it is on the other side of the city on the other side okay it makes no sense they're the same ethnic group they're the same background they're the same latitude and longitude there's no major variables and yet it's huge difference in allergy what we're doing with all this obsessiveness over viruses and germs and the denial of natural infection and natural immunity is that we are totally cooking people's immune systems in ways that are not good we have evolved to live in the presence of pathogens, okay? It's part of our biome, okay we We have become symbiotic with this process, and yet we become obsessed over dirty and clean. and it is actually killing us.
0: well, I, I think so i I think it's yeah, it's almost like we have a we talk about helicopter parents, we have we have now we now have a helicopter government with an incredible amount of power that sees it's and I see this all the time that, <laughs> Nina Turner and I, I like I comment on her stuff on Twitter every once in a while. but you'll see the way that she words everything it's nobody should you know have to endure this nobody should have to endure that nobody should ha- go into debt for this and it's like okay well what's what's your yeah that's the core thesis what's your is- solution your solution is somebody's responsible and somebody is a government entity and and the thing that I try to get across to people is whether it's a pandemic, which naturally happens over the course of history. And, and by the way, when some of the, the real question for me is not if, or when the pan, a pandemic happens, but how, and what's the government's response. And, and I think we have to get out of it. Cause the, the, the biggest concern I have with respect to COVID is basically what you articulated. And that is the lesson that we will learn was not that, you know what, the government really overreacted and we need to understand overreached. overreached um, and really what we need to respect and the, is to have a little bit of humility with respect to, you know, you, you can't have one grandiose government plan that you can impose on, on billions of people across the globe. You, you need something, you need to allow people Which to be able to make Which is the gross failure
2: of the World Economic Forum. Yes,
0: yes. And, and the concern is, is that if you're bought into the World Economic Forum's uh, worldview, and it's not just theirs, right? There's a whole lot of other institutions, they organizations, governments a, 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 that, that believe in this, right? This is their political philosophy. Then you're right. If, if they're so invested in it, it's like, no, this has to be the answer. Well, then when anything happens again, be it pandemic, be it natural disasters, be it war, be it whatever, the answer will always be double down, double down, double down until it works, and, and I feel like what we've seen historically is whenever governments take to that, I mean, how many Maoist-style cultural revolutions or, or great leap forwards do you need to understand that this doesn't work because individuals are trying to make their plans at the same time that governments and bureaucracies and other people are trying to make plans I for saw everybody? Gr- I saw a
2: great meme about this. Uh, when the wall came down in Berlin, yeah. um, which... Which side did people run to? Yeah,
0: exactly? <laughs> exactly. I just saw that. I think we posted it. actually I did. I posted it on my Facebook this morning. Well, here, let me get to some of these questions because our audience has been very patient. They've had they've had a lot on here. So, and these kind of so I think we've kind of gone through all the stuff we wanted to talk about so we can kind of take these okay. questions and some most So we had one question from Laura Stone and, and she said that I've heard uh, in, in 2025 the CDC reports that there are nine viruses that have pandemic potential over the next two to three years. Do we think that that's something that, you know, is, is going to potentially, um, affect us within, let's say the next five years that we have another sort of pandemic on the same level that we saw with COVID?
2: Uh, that's highly improbable. Okay. A lot of this planning is, so I'm going to say something that not many people know. And, um, a lot of it is wrapped around the thesis that 1918 could happen again. Mm-hmm. Spanish flu could happen again. Okay. um. The lives lost from COVID as a percentage of the population was far greater than 1918. Mm. And it was largely driven by bad public policy, in my opinion. Okay, most of those lives could be saved if we didn't suppress early treatment as one example. Mm -hmm. The thesis, the boogeyman here, is the Spanish flu. Oh, my God. Um, Okay, let's reexamine that. Number one, the Spanish flu was not just influenza. I mean, that's one of the things they say in the boogie boogie boogie. Yeah. Influenza could get you, and we have to have all this infrastructure and new billions spent on new flu vaccines. Okay, um, the people that flu kills are basically the the um, fragile, um, and actually CDC played a trick with flu for years, akin to the trick that they played with COVID they defined any respiratory pneumonia contributing to death as influenza, okay? But in fact, there's a bunch of different viruses that go into this RSV and a lot of yeah, other things, yeah. okay? So they that's, that's, for instance, how they pumped up the COVID numbers and suddenly the influenza numbers crashed is it was a question of how they defined cases, okay? So what actually happened in 1918? It was actually a combined viral and bacterial infection. They didn't have... Um, antibiotics then, but they had a really cool new drug, a breakthrough new drug that had just recently come onto the market and was a super duper thing for fever. And they didn't really know how to dose it, but they knew that if you gave it, it would quench fever. And this influenza was causing fever and fever was causing people to die. This is the thinking. Okay. I love going back in old medical texts yeah. that you want to talk about tre- teaching humility. Yeah. Okay. Go read about how they treated tuberculosis, on you know the twenties and thirties and forties. It's it's will open your mind. And they said all the same elegant words and arguments with all the same academic fervor, and it's all stuff. Yeah. Garbage. Manure. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so. So, so what happened the was they had this numerical drug. They really didn't know what the thresholds were for toxicity. And it could be used to treat fever. And fever was assumed to be what was killing people. And so if it didn't bring the fever down, you had to give more drug. Okay? And this was done rampantly because this was a cheap drug. The drug was called aspirin. Huh. Okay? And they basically killed people wholesale by overdosing with aspirin. And that was a major driver in 1918 was medical mismanagement. Okay? Now we come to the present. A strong case can be made that a lot of this excess mortality was due to the bad decisions about ventilation and use of certain highly toxic drugs like remdesivir. Just like a lot of the deaths from AIDS, quote unquote, early on was due to overdosing with AZT, okay? which was highly toxic in a similar way. Okay. And what is the commonality between those two, by the way, do we have any bureaucrats that span both of those and had similar behaviors? Well, yes, we do. It's documented in Bobby Kennedy's book, the real Anthony Fauci. Mm. Um, Fauci drove both of those and the parallels between you're, you're the talking about what the
0: AIDS response and the, and yeah. the
2: COVID response yeah. was, was amazingly similar. Mm. So, I, we, I think that what we really have is a textbook example of government overreach. Um, Nigel Farage, who's become a little bit of a mentor, and I'm very grateful for that, mm-hmm. um, uh, makes the case that um, the the one thing that we can all agree on was the gross over gov- governmental overreach associated with the lockdowns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. We can we can argue until the cows come home about how good or bad the vaccines were, or remdesivir, or whatever. But I think we can all clearly say that the lockdowns were a egregious government overreach all over the world, and the documentation was there before they were implemented that it would cause excess death through you know and a widespread economic devastation, and who was pushing that? The CCP. Now, that must be a conspiracy theory. Um, But in (laughs) fact, that is an
0: authoritarian communist state.
2: (laughs) Want to destroy the West economically uh, and did so very effectively. And this gets right down to the fifth generation warfare point, because one of the key characteristics, as you know, with fifth generation warfare is that you don't actually perceive who is doing it to you. Mm -hmm. If it's being done well, the information, knowledge, fear, belief system that's pushed to the population is done so with low energy, subtlety, and at a level that no one is really aware that it's happening to them. And a case could be made that this was a brilliant move on the part of the CCP to decimate Western economies.
0: Let's, let's go to another question from Donald Naylor. He goes, is there any truth to your claim that these vaccines lower your body's effectiveness to deal with new novel viruses?
2: So the data is actually getting stronger and stronger. And the way I've couched that repeatedly is that there is a hypothesis and observations coming from frontline clinicians. Did you you hear this
0: YouTube? It's a hypothesis and observation about data that's being collected. Precisely.
2: (laughs) Um, and, uh, what is being observed are two key facts, and then there are data behind it that suggests that, particularly, the, there's a dose dependent. Okay, so in, in, in drug development, that's a crucial statement. When you see that if you dose it at X, and then you dose another time at X, and then another time at X, and each time you get the same adverse event or it gets worse, then there's probably a relationship between the dosing of the agent and the phenomena that you're observing. Gotcha. Okay? Um, it makes sense. You know, more is worse Yeah. Um, with, with toxicity. Um, so what's observed is there's a dose-dependent effect having to do with uh, various measurable immunosuppressive activities. Uh, in addition, so then the question is, okay, is that clinically significant? Otherwise, who cares? Yeah. This is like the, all the debate about whether or not the RNA gets reverse transcribed and integrated into your liver, okay? That's all based on two papers in cell culture with a um, a cell line that is a long way from being human, hep G2s, okay, that's that's really screwed up. It's been passaged hundreds, thousands of times, Um Uh, And there's no evidence of anybody having integration into the liver in humans that caused a disease like, say, cancer. Okay. So is this clinically significant, this observation of uh, indicators of immunosuppression? And by the way, the pseudouridine that's jammed all through this virus is known to cause immunosuppression. That's why it was put in there, mm-hmm. okay? Because the inflammatory response, as we covered at the beginning, is a major problem. So they jammed pseudouridine in there to shut down the inflammation. And what does it do? It shuts down inflammation. Well, that's a good thing and it's a bad thing, okay? Shutting down inflammation. So what do you observe clinically? What we're seeing. Absolutely, is reactivation of latent DNA viruses probably multifactorial. It can also be associated with the danger signals, is a euphemism for the cascades of events that happens when you have a toxicity like this that damages cells. So you're having reactivation of Epstein-Barr virus, Cytomegalovirus, um, herpes of various types. Shingles is notorious associated with these products. Okay, and so that's bad enough. Mm-hmm. Reactivation of you know a lot of the a lot of what was couched as long COVID-like symptoms post vaccination or the post vaccination symptoms was actually reactivation of Epstein-Barr virus, mm. okay, which makes you feel like hell. Okay, you have no energy, blah blah blah. Okay, um, okay, that's bad enough. Then my buddy Ryan Cole starts talking about what he's being seen, what he's seeing on the glass slides. And the euphemism that's now, Ryan Cole, by the way, to give him a shout out, gets the uh, gold star for clot shot. Um, so uh, that Ryan Cole, he starts, he's, he is an extremely qualified um, pathologist. Mm-hmm. Runs a private consulting practice, one of the biggest, used to have one of the private consulting uh, uh, pathology practices in the United States. Ex-Mayo Clinic. Yeah. Um, and a buddy. So we start seeing these odd cancers that are coming up in in people that had previously been determined to be in uh, regression, to be cancer-free, um, or they, these cancers were popping up. You can tell cancer f- happens in certain demographics based on your age and other conditions, and suddenly they're popping up in younger people, and they're more aggressive, and they have the, the term mitotic index that means when you look at a glass slide how many of those cells are dividing mm-hmm. okay and, and an unusually large number of those cancer cells are dividing okay that's a high mitotic index so he's seeing these things he starts reporting about it. of course he gets hammered for doing so so and so, then uh, and then me... you have oncologists and cancer surgeons popping up all over the world saying you know what we're seeing this too okay why does that matter because cancer happens in all of us all the time, and it's suppressed by particularly our cellular immune response, our adaptive immune system. Okay, and for some reason, post jab, there seems to be a enhanced risk of these incredibly aggressive
0: cancers that are popping up. So you're you're not saying causation correlation. You're saying that there's an thing, observation. Things are happening. There's an observation. Gosh, wouldn't it be interesting to study this more to determine if there is causation?
2: Yeah, that's, that's yeah. the normal response. And yeah. by the way, that's what pathologists have historically always done. Yeah. They've been the quality control function for hospitals. And oh, by the way, autopsies have been
1: discouraged in COVID. When you say post-job, do you mean like one, two, booster? So once again, it seems to be dose-dependent. Okay,
2: so the people that, so this is why Ryan always says, if you've had one jab, don't have two. If you've had two, don't have three. If you've had three, don't have four. Okay, the data, there's just data revealed under FOIA from Great Britain. Um, Again, the majority of people who have died with COVID have been vaccinated. We can arm wrestle over what that means and the confounding variables, and then we have to go to data sets like Ed Doubts because all of the public data has been tweaked. Okay, so it's when, when you say
0: that all of it's been tweaked, what what do what do you mean by that? Like how it's, do we...
2: CDC is so they for instance they've actively manipulated the data capture. This is one of the reasons why vares is such a hot mess, um, and. Uh, what the kind of thing they've done and I talked about this on Rogan and this is one of the things I was attacked for but it's since been validated is there are perverse incentives in place yeah oh, throughout yeah. our financial incentives to diagnose somebody as dead with cancer I mean dead with covid yeah as as and and co- and declare that that was a covid caused death yeah. when it could have been that they acquired covid when they were already in the hospital for a gunshot wound yeah or whatever okay and they died of their gunshot wound
0: well, and again you're you're using the extreme example to illustrate the point. point. And and the point was, is that as I'm entering medical codes on this particular individual who comes in, who might come in because they were hit by a car, plus they have COVID. Well, if the main thing is the car, the the car accident, I don't get any additional federal support for that. I don't get any additional federal money for that. If they have COVID, I do. And, and by the way,
2: how do we determine that they have COVID? A PCR test. Mm -hmm. Oh, Well, that's easily manipulated. All you got to do is turn up the cycle number. That's why the cycle number issue is such a hot topic in the conspiracy theorist world is because basically if you turn up the crank on the number of cycles, you can get a positive result with PCR for pretty much anything you want okay and the way that you prevent that is you do rigorous testing and development and validation of your assay conditions using you know clinical pathologist and yeah. well established norms so that you have reduced false positives and false negatives but the incentive is to but they don't do that yeah, The incentive they is never to have the had positive. to do that
0: yeah absolutely the yeah. financial incentives are huge well and can i i want to say something real quick because this is another people where people come in and be like how dare you malign our medical community okay let me go ahead and draw a scenario for you you're a hospital. You got to deal with a lot of stuff. By the way, you're one of the only industries in the United States that, based off of federal and state regulations, has to provide your services regardless of someone's ability to pay. So you're already stressed out with respect to trying to be able to, you know, to get funds in order to operate. And then you have a pandemic, which obviously adds a great deal of stress, regardless of even if you're in a high concentration area. And
2: by the way, you're now owned by yeah. major. Um, uh, financial transnationals.
0: Well, but, but let's, I'm going to even throw that out just for a second, not because it's not relevant, but because the example that I'm trying to draw for people is that you are in that hospital, you are trying to, you are overworked. You're trying to deal with everything. You've got all this additional stuff. And now, you know, that if I fill out this medical code, I get additional money. And Oh, by the way, here's a way to test for it. And, and I couldn't go through a bunch of really, really rigorous testing to make sure absolutely 100% that I'm positive that it's But says, you don't have any time to do that. But I don't got any time to do that. And I'm trying to save lives. And this gives my hospital more money to be able to do it. Well, Guys, here's, so, so, Nick, when I, when Nick,
2: I'm, Nick when, here's how it came out. And this is, this is Well, illustrates but wait, wait one second. I, just,
0: I, I want to get this point across because it's so critical. The ability for someone, the ability for a good person in that scenario to rationalize the decision-
2: is so easy. Yeah. Uh, so here's how, here's how it appears to have gone down. Yeah. The Fed said, um, you are all going to be overwhelmed because we have this highly lethal, highly infectious virus that's going to sweep the country. We're going to have mass death. Yeah. Okay. So your hospitals, all of your hospitals are going to be overwhelmed and you're going to be excess capacity. Therefore, you can no longer perform elective uh, interventions. Yeah. Okay. But, you are operating in an environment post-Obamacare where you cannot make a profit on Medicare-Medicaid. You cannot make a profit on your allowable routine uh, hospital support. As you say, you're mandated to perform it. And so there's a kind of a wink, wink, nod, nod with the government. You're allowed to do and charge what you will, what the, what the, what the uh, community will bear for elective procedures. Okay, Now Mr. Government comes in. And they say, okay, guys, no more elective procedures because they're going to facilitate spread of this highly lethal pathogen. And by the way, you're going to be overwhelmed. But by the way, didn't happen, mm-hmm. okay? But you're going to be overwhelmed and you're going to need all your beds. And so no more elective procedures, sorry, okay? And and uh, Mr. Money says, Mr. Government, our hospital chains now will go bankrupt within the next year based on your policy How do you like those cookies? Mm -hmm. Okay. And Mr. Government says, oh, what can we do about that? Oh, I know. We're going to subsidize you for anything that happens. If you admit somebody that's PCR positive, you get a nickel. If you... Put a vent, put a tube down their throat, and start blowing their lungs out. You get a nickel if you administer, and it's not a nickel; it's a few thousand yeah, bucks. Yeah. Okay, you administer remdesivir, we give a nickel. Oh, and by the way, um, thank you, Gilead, for that political dom- uh, donation. Um, and uh, it, and if they die, you get a you get a payment. You have a you have an incentive for them to die. This is what my buddy uh, nurse uh, Aaron Malone is actually her last name. Uh, that was wearing Google glasses in New York City when she was volunteering as a ICU nurse. That captured that fact that they were basically scooping people off the street and killing them. Um, that's why they were doing it. Um, it's because they got paid to do it. I mean, in the I can tell you that in this modern hospital environment, um, this is all driven by um, um, MBAs and MPHs. Okay, it's all about the numbers. Okay. It's all about, are they going to hit their next milestone uh, with Wall Street? Um, And it has very little to do with, I wish it was the case that we have a bunch of hospital administrators that are sitting around um, just racking their brains out about how they can better serve their community, Mm -hmm. but it ain't the way it is anymore.
0: Well, and and what's amazing is a lot of people hear that and say, yes, and that's why we need government controlled universal health care. And it's like, Oh my gosh. So Don't now, you get it? Now you're <laughs> going to create even worse. incentives. That's how because, we got here, because now you're not a customer even you're not. I mean, at, yeah. at no point we've already created conditions within hospitals. Where when you walk in, you're a burden, not a customer. Yeah. You're a cost. Uh, yeah. Well, okay. Let's go to another, let's go to another question here. And these two are kind of similar from Rodney and Tina. Um, and, and this has to do with the whole purpose of, uh, MRNA, um, you know, four vaccines and whatnot, like what, what we talked about this a little bit, but just kind of a summary of what is the point of doing it this way?
2: Okay. And I want to say, cause this bridges into something else that's been a hot topic yet uh, lately. And Jill, actually, my wife was the one that broke this story about the agricultural use of uh, mRNA technology, yeah. which is something that is We're really hearing more of this burning lately. through the ag community. And it is absolutely being deployed by Merck on the equivalent of emergency use basis um, within FDA on swine, okay? Merck has a technology. They will come into your uh, swine herd, you know, in a factory farm for pigs in Iowa or wherever, you know, with the great big ponds and all the stuff that goes with that. And we're not talking about like here in the hills like they used to do where everybody would have a few pigs yeah. um, and they would smoke them. This is a major driver Huge economically. Feed and, lots, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, okay, that's, that's modern uh, swine manu- management. And what happens is if they get an emergent virus in that environment, it'll rip through that swine herd okay and it'll amplify and it'll get worse and worse and better more and more infectious and then it'll go to the next farm the next farm the next farm yeah okay and so what they do is they go in and they sample the virus population that's hap- that's currently circulating in that swine herd and they build a custom mRNA vaccine based on the genetic sequences that they obtain from that sampling and then they administer it in bulk to all the pigs Okay, what could possibly go wrong? Okay, <laughs> please um, tell us. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so so yeah, well we've just seen the virtual equivalent of that with humans. Yeah. Um, over the last three years, right? What could possibly be go? That's hence my facetious statement. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So the reason it it appears to me that the driver, because when I talk to my buddies in ag, like we just had the beef initiative up over in Frayser County, um, last weekend, um. Which is built around the idea of enabling consumers to go direct to producers uh, for their. I have carried
0: legislation on this like you would not believe, and it is amazing the opposition I get.
2: Yeah, yeah, because it's big ag that's opposing you. Um, And there's a lot of money there. Uh, But um, when you have uh, free range chickens, or uh, like here in Virginia, we have the luxury. Of if you don't mow it, a tree grows, right? <laughs> the grass grows like crazy, yeah, and it is yeah. great for grass-fed beef. And oh, we yeah. produce excellent grass-fed black Angus here. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and I can go buy a, a quarter cow tomorrow from one of my neighbors. Oh, go to Polyface um, and Yeah, yeah okay. It right up. <laughs> so, um, uh, the reason why they want this technology is because of intensive agricultural practices like chickens and swine, and increasingly feedlots. Okay. That's who's driving it. It is not the small farmer. It is not the average producer. It is these massive vertically integrated agribusiness industries that have exploded since Earl Butts of the Nixon administration said, get bigger, get out. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's what it goes back to. That's what destroyed small town America. Okay, that is what is
0: cut the heart out of a lot of the root of our culture. So what what is the what is the cuz I am I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that. I I've, I've always said the same thing with this. Look, if you want to do big ag I I don't got a problem with that, but I, I don't like that the rules are now being changed in such a way to favor them at the expense of everybody else. It, it's become regulatory capture and an, and an, It is an a total example
2: of regulatory capture. So what, and so what they is, want they want RNA vaccines. Okay. Just like the ind- because what's happened with the example of this government-subsidized thing that's happened over the last three years is all the rest of pharma is looking at Pfizer. By the way, they, they have Zoetis is the Pfizer animal health arm, just... To put a pin on that one. Okay. Um, and Zoetis is being very quiet about what they're doing with their RNA vaccine programs. We've been able to track that they're doing it, but they don't disclose anything. And they don't have to because the USDA doesn't have a, a transparency requirement like the FDA does with clinicaltrials.gov, just to, to say that, okay? So we don't really know what the hell's going on. Okay, we don't. We didn't even. Nobody even really knew about what Merck was doing with swine until Jill dug it out, and published it in January of this year. And now it's spread like wildfire all over the world. Um, but uh, they they see the enormous profits associated with this new technology. It is a gold rush. Yeah. Okay. So whether or not it's working, it works for them because they're making. Tons of money off of this.
0: So, the, so the theory is, is that this is going to be this is going to be a, a better, more efficient, more cost-effective mechanism, to which in much large-scale... more rapid
2: response because okay. you can go from gene to vaccine. Okay. So it exploits modern vaccine, modern genetic technology. You can sequence these things. You can ship the electronically the sequence off to you know China or or yeah. Indonesia or wherever, and get the DNA back and start manufacturing your RNA vaccine. Matter of fact. Um, Elon Musk made a major contribution investment in a company called CureVac in Germany to build small scale RNA vaccine manufacturing plants for exactly this purpose for rapid response and domestic production. So that's the logic and it is all it is absolutely gene therapy applied to the application of generating an adaptive immune response it absolutely uses your cells as the manufacturing platform okay and it is in the technology has been deployed and it's technology space that i worked on for years many people have worked on for years because it is so clear and compelling the underlying logic that i laid out in 1989 with my patent disclosures Okay, it is it is just like duh. If you're in the field, you you're like, well, of course that's what we do. Okay, but the the devil is in the details. Nobody has able been able to make it safe and effective, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, this tech at this time was deployed prematurely. It was jammed into all of our arms, and I think that probably the potential of the technology probably has been destroyed because they rushed it out too soon. And without making sure that they had solved the problems.
0: So let let me ask let me ask this. All right. So the, the theory is is that theoretically, some point in the future, with greater technological advancement, this could actually be something that could be used safely. But we're not there. But that doesn't hide the fact that it's already been pushed out at this point. Here's my I want I got one other question on the ag component here because this is this is concerning to a lot of people. If I'm throwing if I'm throwing this you know, form a vaccination into livestock and that livestock ends up on the dinner table. Yep. What, what are the potential side effects? Or Good. What, you so know. I get
2: this question all the time. Yeah. First off as a producer. Yeah. Okay. So if you're the farmer, you should be prob- most farmers that I know care about their animals. Mm-hmm. Otherwise they wouldn't do it. It's too hard of a way to live. Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, they love their animals. That's the truth of it. Uh, you know, I'm sure there's exceptions. Sure. Um, uh, but um, they love their animals. And as a producer, one of the things that is being revealed, it was revealed by the young man from Pfizer uh, that got caught uh, in that honey trap with Project Veritas. <laughs> yeah. and we don't need to go any further on that. Yeah, okay? yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, ESG in action. Um, <laughs> but what he revealed, and it was in the third of the drops from Project Veritas, is that the dysmenorrhea, the alterations in menstruation in women, that he, he acknowledged that those are real, that Pfizer acknowledges that they're real. And Pfizer's leading hypothesis for what was driving it was that the jabs were causing damage to the pituitary um, adrenal gonadal axis. Hypothalamic, pituitary, adrenal gonadal axis. That's big medical words to say damage to the endocrine system acting centrally. Okay? If you're damaging the endocrine system in humans using these products, these lipid nanoparticles, which have many properties that matter of fact, there's a special guidance at the FDA if it's a nanoparticle that you're supposed to go through. It's another thing they ignored. Okay? But. Um, if it's damaging to humans, it's also going to damage your animals. Yeah. Okay. That. So you are likely, if you administer these, to be at risk for damaging to the endocrine system of your animals, which is going to involve all kinds of things in terms of their maturation, development, reproduction, et cetera. Okay. So they darn well better force the USDA to ensure that this is adequately tested. Furthermore, I think that at this stage, there must be full disclosure. Yeah. Okay, the consumer must be allowed to know. And I can tell you from all my contacts in the beef industry and the dairy industry, because we also have evidence that this stuff is shed in breast milk in humans. And if it's shed in breast milk in humans, it's probably going to be shed in dairy milk. Yeah. Okay, um, and so um, the, the cattle industry right now is almost universally up in arms over this. They do not want this technology deployed. They have no compelling reason to have this technology deployed into cattle. The swine industry has apparently already embraced it. The chicken industry probably would, except for the chicken industry, the margins are so, so tight that in order to deploy a vaccine into chicken houses, you basically got to have a way to vaccinate every chicken for less than a penny. Okay. And that is, no matter what your technology, that is a wicked hard endpoint. (laughs) I can tell you. Okay. So, um, so that's where, where it's at is it's absolutely being driven by big ag and they're going to want some version of this that's aerosolized or can be deployed safe you know inexpensively because those are the drivers they are they are squeezing the producers the you know we all ha- we all revel in cheap chicken and we can go to chicken fillet and get our little chicken sandwich for whatever it is 350 or something okay what a miracle of modern ag. Well, the reason that happens is because they have commoditized the whole vertical integration of this industry. It's all controlled by a small number of companies, and the farmer has been forced into a position of indentured servitude. That's the price. And that is what's decimated small towns all across the nation. And if, as far as I'm concerned, paying an extra nickel a pound for my chicken so that a chicken farmer can have a decent family living and not be an indentured servant to Tyson's is a nickel well spent.
0: Well, I'll even take it from a different angle. Because, I'm, I, again, I am afraid I believe in free market economics. I believe in finding efficiencies. And, and that's usually why you see consolidation within industry. It's, it's greater efficiencies, which leads to better prices. The problem that I don't think we fully recognized at this point is the the processing component within our food supply? I think is, I think it would be hard to argue that it's not contributing to a host of other health problems.
2: Absolutely. That don't get centralization directly. of that processing, uh, yeah. process and the keeping of animals at high concentration, absolutely breeds infectious disease. You couldn't imagine a better
0: way to do it. Yeah, no, Joe Salatin talks about this, and yeah. I think it articula- he articulates it beautifully. Uh, and, and, what I, and here's the problem, because Joe Rogan asked Joel Salatin this question with respect to, you know, can you, can you really feed a city of 7 million people conducting agriculture the way you are? And he was, and Joel's an honest guy. He's like, no, it would cost more than what you're currently doing. And, and it would be significant, not impossible, but significant. And one of the things that, that Joel was trying to explain, and I think that, that you're articulating here as well, is that there, there's another cost associated with this. R- right now, the cost people associate with the food they buy is how much do I spend at the grocery store? Now, look, I don't, as Adam Smith said, right, I don't buy my bread from the baker because I care about the baker's standard of living, and I buy my bread from the baker because he's got bread and I want it, right? But there's, there's mutual collaboration there to both of our benefits when we engage in that exchange. However, if I buy the bread, and now the bread is causing me additional medical concerns, because of the way that the bread was baked or something like that. Well, well because I, I of the ingredients to, that we
2: put into yes. the bread, by the way, um, so that it hangs on the hook for a longer period yeah. of time, that's, that ingredients that are forbidden in Europe, yeah. which is why people can eat European bread and not eat American bread, and they it, think that it's gluten sensitive. You're
0: not, You're then what, what ends up happening, and, and this is a huge problem with the way that our government regulates food markets, is that there's a disconnect between the actual cost. The actual cost of buying that bread is not a quarter difference, or even a dollar difference between that loaf and that loaf. The actual cost is associated with not only what I paid for the bread, but the after effects of how consuming that bread is now going to affect my physical health. So,
2: for instance, the use of uh, glyphosate as a desiccant, Mm -hmm. which is throughout all of our wheat supply right now, just about, and is linked to autism and all kinds of other birth defects. We read an essay about this the other day, glyphosate, otherwise known as Roundup. Mm -hmm. Okay, Bobby Kennedy made a great... uh, um, Case the other day, that what these people are doing is they are they are extracting value. They are stealing value from uh, the common person, from the population at large. Uh, polluters extract; they t- they steal value from the common, um, from the commons. Mm-hmm. Okay, negative
0: externalities
2: exactly, um, and the, somehow. We have to um, monetize that, or in some way factor it into our decision making. And the problem is that leads right down the road to ESG scores yeah. and all of that stuff. And we still haven't figured out how to deal with that. But, yeah. but there's there's no question. You know, the 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 swine practices, the bulk swine practices, which, for instance, I mean, you could say. Um, you know, Earl Butt says, "Get bigger, get out." Big Ag is, "We're going to feed the world," blah blah blah. And what do we get? An enormous population explosion. There is a cause and effect relationship here. If you if you give a species unlimited food supply, they will act to expand until they exceed that unlimited food supply. That is just a fact. I'm not I'm not in any way advocating for eugenics. Yeah, or, yeah, not or a Malthusian argument. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. but but it is a fact. It's a biologic fact. Um, that's what populations will do. Um, and if you if you set it as uh, agenda 2030 policy, right? UN, uh, which the WH, uh, the WEF is now saying they want to accelerate. Just to put a pin in that one, that's one of their latest. Okay, they want to accelerate agenda 2030. Agenda 2030 says it's a basic human right to migrate to live wherever you want in the world. Okay, so what that means is if you're living in a uh, disadvantaged country
0: yeah
2: uh, in Latin America with crime and and whatever um, you have the right to migrate to uh, the United States or Canada or wherever you want to go um, that's a fundamental human right okay so what happens you you have not invested in the infrastructure you haven't been paying into this system but you're able to migrate into this system and undercut those that have burdened that expense and it's a you know to personalize it, This is what's happened in the medical system. The number of domestically trained physicians in the United States is smaller and smaller because if you're a doc graduated in a a subsidized environment in India, so you basically have little or no medical debt, then you come here, you do a residency, and you get board certified, then you're competing with the docs that are carrying a million dollars in debt okay? Why go into medicine in that environment, okay? What's happened clearly is the gutting of the middle class under these policies. This is the reason why the open border policy is so destructive is not because, you know, all of these slang things about rapists or whatever, okay? It's because you are flooding the market in North America with inexpensive labor that has not had to support the investments of infrastructure that we've all made in order to live in the way that we do.
0: Well, I, I think it's, I think it's interesting too. Like I, I make the, because I, I don't, I don't have a problem with immigration per se. What I, what I do have a problem with, and I, I use Milton Friedman on this, is that you cannot have open borders in an elaborate welfare state. Yeah. Because you're you're now creating a situation where the math doesn't add up. Yeah. If if somebody is another about, perverse incentive. Yes, it, it absolutely is. Like if, if you if you actually have genuine if you actually have a genuine free market and environment where you, you don't have the government taking on the responsibility for providing for everyone's food, healthcare, education, welfare. People look at that, well, that's mean. Well, no. What what it is is an accurate reflection of reality because government doesn't magically create any of these resources. They take them from other people that have created them. And if then you now create this perverse incentive within a political society where it's you can vote to give yourself stuff that other people have worked for, all you got to do is vote for me okay, well, there's diminishing returns there over time because you've told the people, because what you've actually done is you've disincentivized both people from working. If you told the people, that's work, the people that are working extra hard, we're going to take it. And if you told the people that don't work, we're going to give it.
2: Ber- Bernie Sanders and debt forgiveness for students.
0: Oh my God! Right? Well, I, I always, we, we use this term a lot. I'm like, you cannot forgive student debt. All you can do is transfer it onto people that didn't take it out. Well, listen, I, I know we're running up on, on a time thing here. I, I, I think we've gotten through most of our questions. I apologize to our audience for any ones that we didn't. But I just want to give you an, an opportunity of kind of like any last thoughts um, on, on some of the things we've discussed here. One, one of the questions we weren't able to get to specifically, but I do think is important, is a lot of people are asking, okay, great. What do we do about it? Like as an individual right. um, where you're, you're maybe not in a position where you're in the legislature. So this is the last third of what the book. You, what do you do about it? This is it? the
2: last third of the book. Yeah. Okay. And people... And by the way, please
0: repeat the title of the book again.
2: Lies, lies my government told me in the better future coming. Yeah. So what is that better future? How do we get there? Um, we go through the public policy things that Trump tried to do that. I think a lot of them were really positive, like schedule F. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk about the underlying issues that are happening in the Supreme court with administrative law mm-hmm. and the meaning of uh, EPA versus West Virginia, for example. Um. We also talk about intentional communities. In a world in which there is this amazing force, this pressure of the wealthiest of the wealthy that control the vast majority of global resources that want to push us towards a collectivist future and have been trying to push this now ever since World War II and really earlier than that, Mm -hmm. okay? Huxley and Orwell wrote these amazingly prophetic books based on what was already in the planning at that and implementation stage at that point in time okay so they've been working on this for decades they are likely to have significant success they have so much momentum um, it's overwhelming when people encounter this when they really become red pilled or black pilled um, then then one of the reactions is oh my god I might as well go shoot myself um, or go live in the Shenandoah, um, and hide, uh, intentional communities. Uh, one example that your audience is probably familiar with is from Anne Rand's Atlas Shrugged and Galt's Gulch, Mm -hmm. which is what gives rise to the name of my Substack, who is Robert Malone, referring to who is John Galt.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, so intentional communities, what are intentional communities? Monasteries were intentional communities. Um, Amish communities and Mennonite communities, of which we have here in Madison County, are examples of intentional communities. Um, uh, The Bitcoin community is clearly an intentional community and has all kinds of commonality and and communication. The
0: the New Testament church were... Churches
2: (laughs) are... Churches... And by the way, one of the observations we've seen talking about looping back to mass formation is communities of faith all over the world have been the most resistant to the psyops and propaganda and, and hypnosis and mass formation. Okay? The very fact that they are communities and they have these bedrock principles that they all agree on is allowed them to be extremely resistant to what has been deployed on all of us over the last three years. It's an amazing thing to watch, um, just as kind of an academic uh, thing, you know. Um, so intentional communities, build intentional communities. And once you start doing that, you know, Chris Martinson lives fairly close here. Mm. Um, And I had dinner with him the other day, just a few miles south in Greene County. And and he and I were talking about the problem with intentional communities, and he's also invested in this idea, is there's a whole bunch of core problems you have to solve. And of course, one of the problems is barter. Barter is limited. You can only do it within a certain range, a certain number of people. And then you have to have some token that you can exchange. And what is that token? Well, are we all going to walk around with cougarons and maple leaves, <laughs> or um, you know, hard to do? And there's not enough to go yeah, around. Yeah. And so then we get into uh, decentralized cyber mm-hmm. and blockchain, um, or or fiat currency, and we've seen how that goes. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's and and then there's the problem of medical care. I mean, there's these core problems that communities are going to have to solve, and they're going to have to figure it out. And it's going to be hard, hard stuff to work out. Um, uh, another one is as an action item and i S I've spoken and referenced fifth generation warfare. It's also known as five GW. It has nothing to do with cell towers yeah. <laughs> just to make it clear. Um, <laughs> it's established terminology. I did not make it up. Yeah. Um, and you can find, uh, um, general Flynn's book on 5GW on Amazon or wherever good books are sold and you can get the Kindle version. There's also a great academic one on 5GW that has been around for about a decade. So it's a little outdated, but really this stuff hasn't changed that much. What is evolving is how it's being deployed on social media and the various nuances with bots and trolls, et cetera, the strategies that are being deployed, but the core ideas are the same. If you take the time to learn that, Just like if you learn how modern advertising works, right? The medium is the message. If you learn modern advertising, it becomes a lot harder to sell you a burger or a vaccine or sex, or whatever the thing is. Once you can see through what they're doing to your mind, once you can see what the New York Times and the Washington Post and NPR do to you on a daily basis, then you become a lot more resistant to it. You can see through it and you can approach the world like I do after dealing with the intelligence community for decades, which is everything has to be triangulated. You don't trust any information, you're constantly seeking fragments of information and comparing different sources, etc. This is the new Chinese menu decentralized world of, of um, modern media, of decentralized media like the podcast, right? Um, so as you learn 5GW technology, you be able to see through it and you become more resistant to it, you're less likely to be manipulated, frankly, to be a sheep. Mm-hmm. Um, the next level is that 5GW tech, and that approach to the battlefield, because that's what we are in, is a modern battlefield. It's a battlescape for your mind. It's to control your mind, okay, and everything you think and believe and feel, okay, to vote this way or vote that way or go get trans surgery or, you know, uh, buy an electric car or whatever the thing is, okay, It's all you're all being manipulated for a variety of different commercial reasons and political reasons. And the beauty of 5GW is you don't have to have F-18s and M1s, okay? You and Or even AR-15s, right? You can deploy it. It is a low-energy technology that you can master. And if you start to master it and deploy it and understand it and see through it and understand what's being done to you and communicate that to your colleagues, communicate that to the poor soul in line who's still wearing a face nozzle, Okay. Help them to see gently with empathy, okay? This is where Christianity and that logic comes in, okay? You can, you can be nefarious, scheming, um, bond villain deploying this stuff, or you can do it as a Christian. You can do it with an open heart, um, with good intent, and avoiding the sins of information warfare, which are so easy to fall into. The, the logic that they've done it to me, and so I'm going to do it to them, okay? And if you do that, you become them, mm-hmm. okay? You will become them if you do that. It's just you will you will, you go right there. You can't not do it. You have to impose your own moral standards on those transactions, but we're a lot more than they are. There's a lot more of us than them. And if, if we can start to do this, if we can wake up, remember the estimates that it was less than 5% of the U.S. population were responsible for the American Revolution, mm-hmm. okay? You can choose to be a victim if you've been vaccine damaged or you've been a victim, if you've been victimized by the PSYOPs, as all of us have. You can choose to be a victim or you can choose to be a warrior. It's your choice. You can choose to live in a society in which you're being told what to do. And many people want that. Many people want to be told what to do. They just do. And some of us want to live free. And if you happen to be one of those, which is a minority, you know, it's maybe only 20%, maybe 10% that really want to live in free, as free people. It's it's wicked hard to be free. Um, you got to take responsibility for everything you do. If your kid gets sick and you chose not to give them the jab, you're going to live with that guilt for the rest of your life. Okay? But if you choose to give them the jab and they get sick from the jab, you're going to live with that too. That's the nature of being free is you take personal responsibility for your actions. And it is tough because you are not going to be right all the time. And you got to cowboy up. So cowboy up, learn fifth generation warfare, be a warrior. Don't be a victim. And we'll get through this and we can beat the globalists that want to control us and hurt us all into indentured servitude through our indebtedness and our jobs and everything else. But uh, it's it's not easy to get from being a suburbanite, um, you know, doing your daily job on pulling in your check and keeping your mouth shut to being a free living person. I'm in mean, taking personal responsibility for yourself and your family. I don't think you have any choice because if you don't do it now, it's going to be done to you soon enough.
0: Well, I, I really appreciate that is one of the things that, um, and I really appreciate that the, again, you ended your book with the better future. Um, because one of the things that we've noticed is, as we've talked about conservatives in media is, the, the fear porn, as you referred to it, is is not just a left-wing Absolutely phenomenon. Absolutely not. It is a right-wing phenomenon as well. And one of the things that we, we've really tried to focus on, even when we talk about difficult issues, and when we, even when we talk about issues where it feels like the opposition or the odds are, are just entirely against you, it's always about rounding it back to, okay, but what can you do? And what can you do without asking permission because it's it's so easy in politics. I was just talking to a group last night. I said, look, I'm not telling you to not be involved in politics. I'm not telling you to not be I Do all of those things. But just understand that as you do those things, th- there seems to be this drive to get people to focus on a way to view things where you have to play within these particular set of rules. See, it's the Overton window again. Yes, and and it's this idea, when you talk about intentional communities and when you talk about this idea of, of assuming personal responsibility for your actions and looking at what can I affect? There's things I can't change. Yes. There's things that I can. And the more you focus on the things that you can change within your life, the happier you're going to be. And one of the biggest things that we emphasize on this show, and I think you've articulated, is this. You can sit there and scream all day long about the lie. Right? The lie can be... Whether you want to call it the, the PSYOPs. And, oh, and you want it to, feels so good. Yeah, you can call it the, oh, the PSYOPs, Oh, it feels the so good to idiot. blame.
2: And it's another aspect of mass formation. Yeah. You're blaming somebody else. Yeah,
0: it's the, the lie. And you know what? Look, the lie needs to be called out. Nobody's arguing. But if you ever want someone to let go of a lie, you better be pointing to some truth that they can actually get to. And I think when you talk about the intentional communities at, at the the family level, the civic level, the the church level, whatever it may be, um, are what you're doing is you're finding purpose and you're finding meaning in the things that you're doing. For me, that's my faith. Um, but I, I think that I think that part's critical. And and every time I think about it, no matter no matter what the odds are anywhere else, the moment I start thinking about what I can do for my family, for my friends, for my community, and and taking control over that, no matter how small it is, taking control over it the more I find that, that purpose that I was created for. So Dr. Malone, thank you so much for Mm -hmm. being here and look for the audience. You can choose for yourself. Do you think this makes sense? I think, I think what Dr. Malone has talked about today, I think it makes a lot of sense. And, and it, 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 it gets me frustrated, not at the people that wanted to disagree with him, but the people that wanted to silence him instead of publicly standing up and saying, here are my disagreements. Let's have a dialogue. And I will tell you right now, if you want to identify something right off the bat, it's whenever somebody seeks to completely silence their opposition, as opposed to engaging in debate, I get very, very skeptical at that point. So thank you very much, Dr. Malone, for the work you did for the risk that you and your family took in in stepping out. and providing your perspective based off of your expertise and your experience. Thank you to our audience for sticking with us. Thank you for the questions. We tried to get to as many as we possibly could. Great comments going on. Um, Once again, thank you for joining us, and we will see you next episode.